Millie should be making her way here shortly. I'd like to hear from you on this stuff that you put out as well. So that should be interesting. And then I'm also going to grab um, the Dan Bongino clip that I clipped today because it really does put in context some things. Uh, so I'm going to kind of go over all this stuff. If you guys are wait, welcome. I'm just waiting for Millie to make her way in. And, uh, and Kyle gets ready to come up on mic. We'll kind of go over all this stuff. So I want to revisit this, especially in light of recent developments. Obviously, Darren Beatty, uh, Julie Kelly, Dan Bongino, they're all covering this pipe bomb story. Darren Beatty's been covering the pipe bomb story since I don't know how long I can remember. Um, and there we go. And so I think we should get into it. What's up, Kyle? Hey, buddy. Yeah, I got stuck in the car. I'm still driving. <laughs> oh, yeah, no worries. If you want, I mean, I can just kind of pilot until you get home if you want. Sounds yeah, good. let's do that. I will, uh, I'm, I'm going to be inbound, but it's raining. I don't want to run into anybody. That's probably not worth it. That being said, I will listen. I'll just be as a speaker. I can't do any co-hosting until I Yeah, that way you get home, get your setup going. That way I can drop you and bring up as a co-host. Yep, that works. All right, cool. Um, I'm going to bring – I do need a volunteer. Um, so if you guys don't know what I'm talking about here, like I said, Millie will be here shortly. But down in the chat, I put together kind of a mini thread of some of the content we're going to go over because I think that we do need to kind of dig down in a lot of this content. And if anybody's listening uh, that has a proper audio setup that can play clips, I would greatly appreciate it if you came up. That way I can play the Dan Bongino clip. And of course, when Millie gets here, there's going to be some audio that I'm sure she's going to want to play as well. So I don't know. Jack, do you have uh, uh, access to audio set up there? Well, I have my microphone. I can, you know, I could play it from my phone and then it can and put it into the microphone. I think that could that work? Okay, so you're on a computer. Yeah, I'm on, yeah, I'm on my computer. And, but I also have my phone with me, so if you want, I could try to put them, um, you know, put play the audio from my phone into the microphone, so it goes registers to the computer. Yeah, let's let's give it a shot. So, real quick, while we're having everybody fill into the room, uh, if you guys could retweet the space, uh, this is going to be an excellent space. I think it's going to be eye opening for some that maybe not have been paying attention to some of the stuff that Millie and I have been doing uh, that that Kyle brought out today in regard to re the January six pipe bomb story. So uh, we'll get that going. But actually, if you could, while we're waiting, this was a clip from Dan Bongino. It's down in the chat, Jack, um, that Dan had on his radio show today. He did roughly the same kind of segment on his um, on his main podcast show. But I clipped it off the radio because I, I like the way he put it here better. Um, and I knew he was going to be covering this today. So that's why I was all over it, both the radio and the podcast. Normally, I can't spend four hours watching content. But today it was specific. I was looking for some things because I needed to kind of tie some stuff up for folks. And so he's got about a three, four minute clip here that I clipped out of his radio show that I think is really important to note because he's been talking about the January 6th bombing case the entire time. And I think it's going to be important that people listen to this and understand. And what this, how this, how I believe that Millie and I believe that this ties into what Dan's referring to is plan A and plan B. Plan A being Millie's investigation and the Sunrise uh, Zoom calls and all the stuff that we have been going through, we still have their entire documents library. So like a lot of the stuff that, that Millie's been coming out with that I've been coming out with is coming out of the Sunrise Zoom calls investigation. If you guys aren't familiar with the Sunrise Zoom calls, essentially what it was was a bunch of horizontally aligned affinity groups, 
BLM shut down DC, uh, Antifa, uh, the, the normal cast of characters like Lisa Fithian, so on and so forth. Um, uh, so uh, Maria Stefan, all these people. And there's some members, current members of government, former uh, government contractors on this call and what they were going to do November 4th, 5th and 6th in D.C. And during this investigation, they have this entire documents hub, which we still have access to, of every single resource, every single thing that they have done, including the documents like the Transition Integrity Project, uh, the document called The Count uh, that I that I did some reporting on, the Marxist trainings that they were doing with government federal employees, and then Millie's thread today came for the Feds for Democracy um, Zoom calls, where they were having these training sessions, Maria Stefan, many of these same, many of the same cast of characters. And what she came out with today is essentially just going along with the same the same investigation. It's massive. And I believe that it I believe that it tells a story about January 6th when you look at the document like the count and you watch the sunrise Zoom calls and what they had planned to do to prevent Congress from meeting on January 6th. So you couldn't hear any evidence of voting irregularities. So there's a lot here. And then what Dan Bongino has also been talking about harping on, along with Julie Kelly, uh, Darren Beatty, and, and Kyle today, is it appears to be that the pipe bomb at the DNC was plan B if for some reason Congress was able to meet and started hearing this. They were going to say, oh my gosh, it's so crazy. Kamala was at the DNC. There were these, these crazy MAGA people were trying to blow her up. So, Jack, I'm, that's kind of setting the stage for this video. And, Mike, welcome to the stage. Good to see you. Hey, <clears throat> hey this uh, is a great topic. Yeah, absolutely. I'm glad you're here. I want to go into it. So I'm just kind of like going to play this mic for like four minutes. It's from Dan Bongino today. It's going to kind of set the stage, and I'm waiting for Millie to get here. And then we're going to deep dive this stuff. So uh, we've been kind of talking about it for a while, but it seems to be finally hitting the top. So go ahead, Jack. Let's test it. All right, let's test it out. out there, Jim, it's time. Just plan B. Let me let me walk you through something. Hold on. Let's go. Can you turn up just a little bit more? Thing on January 6th, they had a problem. Why? Folks, regardless of your feelings about Donald Trump's allegations about the election, there was clearly, clearly problems in the 2020 election. Anyone telling you otherwise is either blind or stupid. Or just straight up a communist, okay? We did the first mass mail-in ballot election. When the Democrats and people inside the United States government absolutely knew that they were going to have fraud problems in that mail-in ballot election. How do I know that? Because America First Legal, which does incredible work, and you should be following them on Truth and Twitter. America First Legal dropped the bombshell yesterday that CISA, a United States government entity, the Cybersecurity Infrastructure Security Agency, noted in internal documents before the election that if they were going to use COVID as an excuse to do a mass mail-in ballot election, that they were going to run into some fraud problems. And you know what happened? It was censored. Don't, don't take, we'll cover it in detail tomorrow, so don't sweat it. I'm not going to let it go. But it's related to this bombing story. The New York Times also noted, which I'll get to a little bit later, in a 2012 piece they did, that mail-in voting voting is rife with fraud. Matter of fact, the rejection rates for mail-in ballots are double. You mean the New York Post there? No, no, I mean the New York Times. The piece is by Adam Liptak. It's in my newsletter today, bongino.com slash newsletter. If you'd like to read it yourself. The Democrats knew they had a problem. 
You cannot conduct a mass mail-in ballot election without legitimate concerns for fraud that both the United States government and the New York Times themselves brought up. This is why the left never covers my show, because they don't want people looking up the stuff I just told you, because they know I'm right. Now, I can't prove a counterfactual. What would the vote count have looked like if we didn't do mail-in balloting? I don't know. It didn't happen. It's called a counterfactual in economics. That's why it's impossible to prove. But I'm telling you, 2020 was shady AF. And they knew it. And that certification day, they had a problem. They knew if mainstream Republicans in both the congressional side of the House and the Senate side, on that certification day, brought up viable, believable problems and contradictions about the election, contradicting the Democrat narrative, that the entire nation would see it on every cable channel. And the Democrats needed a way to shut that down, like, what's his name, Jim? Bucky Powdermaker? If you know, you know. They needed Bucky Powdermaker. He shoots it down. It rhymes with hit. They needed Bucky Powdermaker. But the Democrats couldn't predict what Trump was going to do on the mall. So they probably had some plan A. What was that plan A? Ladies and gentlemen, I don't know. What was plan A? I have no idea. But I can tell you right now, plan B was, hey man, if there were some bombs discovered and Kamala Harris was out there, you know, we can blame it on the MAGA crowd and say, hey, look, they were trying to kill the vice president-elect. All these conspiracy theories are causing violence about the election. It's time to shoot that group down. You call me crazy all you want. I don't care. I'm done. I'm not. I've, I've never wanted to appease a bunch of Washington Post op-ed writers and a bunch of bags like Philip Bump and others. I'm telling you straight. Call me crazy. Call me whatever you want. All I ask is you ask two very simple questions of Kamala Harris, and I will forgive you. What the hell was she doing at the DNC during the biggest moment of her life, certifying this controversial election? What was she doing there? And why is the videotape of the bomb being placed outside of the DNC being placed? Why is it missing? You ask those two questions, call me whatever you like. Thanks, Jack. I appreciate it. And uh, man, if you guys not catch his podcast today, please go back. I know he had Julie Kelly, I think today on his radio show. I didn't really catch it. I was working on some other stuff, but I caught this part, uh, which is why I clipped it, because it's it's going into some of the stuff that Millie and I have been talking about and Jennifer have been talking about in regards to the Transition Integrity Project. Dan's talking about that recently. No one's gotten to the count yet. However, we've been deep diving that. And I can tell you, I have some concerns. And this is regards to plan A. But plan B, I mean, I, Darren, Darren Beatty seems to be in the same track. Julie Kelly seems to be in the same track. Dan Bongino seems to be on the same track. I haven't gotten, Kyle, your official opinion on this or Mike. But my opinion, I, I agree with it 100%. And, and yes, you're right. I do not know exactly what plan A was. But boy, oh boy, do I have a lot of puzzle pieces that should be talked about and litigated and probably take a look at that would make more sense. But, but again, that's what we're going to get into here. I also want to get into, Kyle, the, the, the post that you put out. And then when Millie gets here, I want to talk about some of the things that uh, we had a space on the stuff that Millie put out today, yesterday, last night. 
and uh, she put it into thread format and it is damning. It's explosive. And she's going to break it up into, I think, two or three more, three, two or three more threads because it's so much information. And we play a lot of the video of Maria Stefan talking with federal workers, talking about what's going on and all these things. So that's coming. And I think we're trying to set the stage here. And I'm really trying to really trying to say, OK, I don't know exactly what plan A was, who exactly was involved. I have a bunch of names. I got a bunch of documents. I got a bunch of Zoom calls, got a bunch of this stuff. And I think that a proper investigation needs to be warranted. So, but this uh, January 6th pipe bomber question uh, by Dan Bongino, I think is expert. And I think that we should get into it. Um, so I don't know if you guys want to add anything before I kind of shift and keep moving. Let me, let me throw something in there just to, to chew on the plan A question, which I think is, uh, I think that's always been the question. Like, what was the original? Intention? I mean, I could talk yeah. about, you know, just about the, uh, the other. Hang on, Jack. Hang on, Kyle Falcon. Oh, wait, I can hear. Go ahead. Yeah, so so consider this. Um, number one, whatever plan A was, it was enacted by government people, it seems like. that. So government plans tend to not be uh, perfect. They tend to be sort of imperfect, and they're run with maybe first-level order thinking. A lot of times, a lot of the people that are running strategy, especially if it's the implementation end, does not do real well. The question that I've had since the beginning, and I was just on uh, with uh, Owen Schroyer for InfoWars. If you guys missed it, you can always see it again tomorrow. He's going to run it on his Twitter feed. But the, the question we were discussing was, why was the date January 6th not declared a national special security event in the national capital region, an NSSE? Why did it not have the resources that would go into that sort of event? And if you're not familiar with it, just kind of briefly, it's a statutorily dis- defined event that the Secret Service calls in all available resources. They set up a command post, which has a representative from all law enforcement and any kind of public safety assets in the area. Those people all are able to sort of coordinate because they're in the same room. And then almost every agency would set up their own command post to marshal their resources around. And everybody knows where everybody is. There's generally speaking, blue force trackers, which is, you know, sort of like um, uh, geotagging of all the individual assets. So whether you have people that are low visibility and surveillance or they're uh, overtly doing uh, crowd control or they're doing investigative stops where they're they're dressed in official gear and they're identifying themselves in plain clothes, et cetera, et cetera. They usually have the Department of Energy, you've got uh, ATF, you've got DEA, you've got the Park Police. So all these resources go into play, and that happens every single year multiple times. It always happens for the State of the Union, um, which I've been a part of that a couple of times. It goes in for different parades and and big protests that are are set up in advance. And the idea is is that uh, the federal government pays unlimited resources and overtime for the you know, local SWAT teams to be on standby and the bomb squads to be on standby and the riot teams to be available. So all these these resources are generally marshaled and it's not that big of a deal to declare it. They just say, okay, there's going to be a big speech. There's going to be a big gathering. It's going to be the March for Life. It's going to be take your pick. They do it all the time. Why was that not declared? So that's part one of my question about the plan A or sort of my uh, my my thesis, my operational idea. Because if you don't declare that, then you're going to always be short on resources. And then the sort of the idea of, of a plan B is if you have to, if, if something doesn't happen, whatever the plan A is, then you're able to easily pull even the limited resources that you have to whatever a secondary site is. If you suddenly have, okay, there's a protest going on outside the Capitol and it's not violent. Guess what is violent? A bomb or two bombs that are placed. And you're going to have to have resources respond that are going to be able to set up a cordon and a security perimeter and make sure that people are minimum safe distances. You're going to have to evacuate things. There's all kinds of things that come into play once you declare that there's an explosive device or multiple explosive devices, because you have to assume based on size that it's going to have a certain radius. 
And that's going to be dangerous to basically everybody. It's indiscriminate. So I think that's kind of the framework that I look at this thing as. The, the plan A is actually less mysterious. It's not you know real clear, but people breaching the barricades are coming in with a lower security perimeter. And I think the fact that there's uh, it's not an NSSE, that's always been the big question for me, having participated in, I don't know, maybe a dozen of these things. And I didn't participate in every single one of them, but there's multiple every year. So just throwing that into the discussion. No, I, and I think it's uh, very, very important to note because again, we we saw, we've heard, you know, Cash Patel and, and when he was, you know, saying, hey, uh, Muriel Bowser, hey, Nancy Pelosi, you're going to need X, Y, and Z, and it was refused. That's left a lot of questions. And I think that that kind of goes along with what you're saying, Kyle. But then, uh, again, the, the January 6th pipe bomb scenario, right? Another thing that Dan talked about today was was the fact that um, that camera that you can, oh, what did he call it? You can rotate, what was it, RTV, I think is what he called it. PTZ. PGZ, yes, thank you. Right. So you can... So basically you can move it, you can zoom in, you can do all these things, and it's still going to have stationary cameras to do its backup when it's zooming in and it can't see the entire picture. And so what happened to the footage with those two other cameras that he pointed out today? I think that was a very well, important note. For what, for what it's worth noting, tomorrow's going to be a big day to watch uh, Steve Baker's channel. If you guys aren't following him, he's okay. recently been signed with the Blaze full time, but it's TPC Tango Papa Charlie, the number four USA, TPC for USA. Um, watch Steve Baker. He's got something big coming tomorrow. I have an inkling of what it is, having some conversations with him over the last couple of weeks. And uh, if he's dropping what I think he is, then it's going to be the one of the missing links from this discussion. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah, Steve Baker. He's been in the space before when the footage was released. And obviously, there's nobody that's been more of a hawk on the footage uh, than Steve Baker. So, yeah, go follow Steve Baker. He's a, He is a contributor at The Blaze. And he has had access to the January 6th tapes and has been trying to release whatever he could. Uh, the gloves are finally off. And the FBI decided to come after him, which is hilarious. And it seems like they're backpedaling, but we'll see how that turns out. Uh, because they went pretty hard in the beginning, and now it seems like they're backing out of it. So we'll see. Um, but, I, you know, Steve Baker, yeah, absolutely. I'll, I'll definitely be checking that out tomorrow. And, again, this January 6th pipe bomb story being Plan B. And we think that we've been covering the best details that we could possibly find to try to figure out Plan A. Like you said, it's not, it's not as intricate, but it still speaks to, I think, the broader point of Plan B. And that's why I'm kind of bringing this in. And I want to talk about the document to count, but yeah. So, Aaron, let me let me throw this out there as a you know the, the whole story. For what it's worth, and and here's my my background and being there. If you don't know who I am, I've worked for the Washington Field Office for a little bit over five years, including during this time frame. And in addition to doing NSSEs on a regular basis and being the first one that I actually attended was Donald Trump's inauguration where I was uh, in the crowd wearing a hoodie and, you know, looking in a low visibility role. We were basically looking for people that were going to start trouble and that would be able to infringe on people's First Amendment liberties to celebrate or protest or do anything they want. Anybody who got violent, we were there to kind of uh, intervene and, and call in from a from a directed location where they were watching where we were. We were going to be able to bring in other resources to, to eliminate that, not uh, kill them, but, you know, arrest them and talk to them and investigate and do whatever needs to be done, which is what you do. That's th There's always supposed to be a lot of people moving around in these big crowds. But what, what's interesting about the uh, the National Guard situation, which which would be much more innocuous, you don't need 10,000 National Guard's troops if you have declared that event the way that it's supposed to be done, because you basically, it cancels leave for everybody. All the troops are on standby. Everybody is there. And so if you had said, hey, we're going to offer you these National Guardsmen, we're like to, we'd like to activate them and make it available. And they say, we're declining. The assumption, I would assume, 
This is the way that I would always expect because when you when that day was available for me and I took leave on January 6th on 2021, you know, I was in Maryland and I shouldn't have necessarily been able to go to Maryland, but they didn't call it what it was supposed to be. So my team wasn't on standby like it normally would be. But generally speaking, when you have all those resources and mutual aid is called in for the locals and everybody's, you know, getting a paycheck for doing overtime, then you don't need National Guard troops. And that would be the assumption that would always be the operational you know, thing. The only problem, and this is something that's always bothered me, and I don't know the answer to this, the Secret Service, in theory, answers to the president. It's an executive agency under DHS. And if the Secret Service, who declares NSSEs and then quarterbacks them, did not do so, why was that? Were they not you know, listening to what Trump was involved in at that point in time? Had they already begun trans, uh, uh, you know, transfer of power kind of mindset? Or had they really just fallen asleep on the job? And all those are, are kind of possible if you've ever been around the federal government. It's almost always sort of stupidity instead of nefarious purpose. And yet there's an awful lot of things that are in play on that particular day that we have to kind of look at it and go, there's, a, there's maybe too many to just whitewash it and say, this is just government malperformance or, or a failure to operate. And you know, I, I go back and forth, but the fact that Secret Service didn't declare it and they do answer in theory to the president is very weird to me. And um, and maybe we'll flesh that out a little more. Yeah, no, I'd like to flesh that out as well. And so uh, while you're making your way back home, Kyle, as well, uh, I, I am going to bring up a couple documents here um, in regards to planet. I think I think it's just important to note um, because it, it is important. And, it, and here's why I, I, I want to flesh that out because I want to wait for you to get home so we can also uh, talk about your post today. And in response to Thomas Massey and kind of what's going on and what Dan and Julie and Darren and everybody's been talking about, I think it's important. Uh, so we're going to get to that as well as soon as you get home. And up in the chat or up in the nest, I'm sorry, guys, up in the nest, I've got Kyle's uh, post from today. And if you scroll to the right, the very first post, it's called Documents Thread. This is from a space that Millie, Jen and myself, we did back on January 6th. And uh, it was on the uh, it was on the anniversary. Actually, there was a reason we did this. One of the documents, and let me kind of set the stage here. Where are my audio guys? They both dropped, actually. But let me set the stage here a little bit. So in the Sunrise Zoom calls, uh, the there was there, obviously there's tons of documents. One of them was Transition Integrity Project. We've talked about this. This is the war games that was done by the Bergruen Institute, Nils Gilman and Rosa Brooks. Rosa Brooks is a very familiar name. Uh, and obviously normize in and many of these other people. And they did the Transition Integrity Project where they war game how the election would go. And this is back in August of 2020. They released the report August 14th, if I'm not mistaken, off the top of my head. And if you go through that document, it is listed there. And let me see here real quick. Okay, Adam, got you. Adam is my audio guy. And are you talking about... One second. I'm getting some messages here, guys. I'll kind of just give me one second. Yeah, Aaron, while, yeah. You, while you're doing that, if, if you're able to bring up Senior Chief EXW and George, if you're willing to join, uh, George's got some interesting visibility to the discussions after the fact of all the fusion centers and the uh, national level calls that were going out regarding the investigation and what was being briefed to the rest of the FBI, which I think is I think is also worth hearing when we start talking pipe bomber. It's it's worth knowing what the internal messaging was. I, I Yep, I sent him a request as well. So thank you for that, Kyle. I got him. Um, I haven't seen him in a while, so I forgot who he was. I got him now. Uh, sent, sent him the request. So he, anytime he requests the mic when he can, it'll automatically kick him up. And in, and in these documents that I was talking about in the Sunrise Zoom calls that Millie had somebody inserted inside. She has all the recordings of every single bit of the Sunrise Zoom calls. And it's really fascinating. 
when you look at these horizontally aligned leftist protest affinity groups like Sunrise Movement and uh, BLM, Antifa, Shut Down DC, and like the common characters like Lisa Fithian and Maria Stefan, who is a color revolution specialist. She wrote a book on it. Um, and it kind of based on Gene Sharp's work. If you guys don't know who Gene Sharp is, he's the originator of, you know, kind of color revolutions. And then uh, Maria Stefan wrote a book. And then you've got people like Norm Eisen and Michael McFall. <laughs> Michael McFall is an interesting character. We've talked about him a lot um, on the side regarding EIP and Stanford Hoover Institute. Anyway, long story boring. Out of these calls, um, came. there's tons of documents we're still going through. Uh, Millie's been releasing a ton. I released a couple. One of them was called The Count. And this is essentially like a 40-page document that was designed to give to the quote-unquote ground troops to kind of set the stage on what the ground troops were, were these horizontally aligned affinity groups that were going to start protesting and shutting down D.C. November 4th, 5th, and 6th. And essentially what they were going to do is, is various different uh, activities. They had they had entire planning going on. They had where all the police stations were. They had exact maps of the White House, exact maps of the Capitol. But in this document, the count, it's really interesting to note because this came out of it. On page 35 of this document, sorry for the plane, guys. Democrats in Congress must use every constitutional, procedural, and political means necessary to delegitimize Trump's attempt to usurp the presidency up to and including voting in unison against any Republican effort to count Trump's electoral college votes, ordering the sergeant at arms to remove Republicans from the House chamber, boycotting the electoral college count, and staging protests inside the Capitol to make it physically impossible for Congress to meet. Now that is for January 6th. So this this document here essentially was they knew like kind of what Dan was talking about in that opening clip that I played where they knew that there was going to be way too much. They were going to be able to explain away. And, and that's why he brought up the CISA report that America first legal has done. That is also attached to one of the threads. Guys, if you want to go take a look at that, it's a damning, damning report. Um, if you consider that they knew that there was going to be challenges. Now we've pretty much gotten the timeline down to when, um, the windows started being broken and people started breaching the barriers was around the time that Paul Gosar out of Arizona was going to start reviewing um, some election irregularities. Now, I, I'm not making the exact connection. Could have been a coincidence. I'm, I'm simply reading these documents. I'm listening to their words on these on these Zoom calls that they had, what their plans were. We've reviewed them a million times. We'll, we'll do it again. But I might even do this for this for the space. I, I want to get some comments because I see senior chiefs up with us and Mike's up with us and Kyle. So I don't want to like just run this place with the audio. But Millie did put together a three minute clip of exactly what the sunrise Zoom calls were. And then when you look at documents like the count and you look at the events that happened on January 6th, you start kind of asking some questions. And I, this is where I start to look at what plan A looks like, because as Dan pointed out as well, they knew that Congress could not meet and review all of this. They, they just couldn't let it happen. And so was was, you know, the pipe bombs plan B. I think those are the questions that we're going to litigate. Um, so, senior chief, I don't know if you wanted to add on to what Kyle said or maybe wait till we get to the pipe bomb here um, or we can just get right into it. I know Kyle's going to be home in like 15, 20 minutes uh, and then we can start reviewing some of the additional content or I can have Adam play the Sunrise Zoom call video. Go ahead, senior. No, I, I didn't. Actually, I'm a little bit late. I didn't hear what Kyle had to say. So um, I'll just hold fire uh, until the appropriate time. Thank you. No, fantastic. All right, great. Well, thanks for joining us. I really appreciate it. I can't wait to get into this. Guys, this is going to be, this is, this is, this is what I care about right now. Um, so Adam, if you could do me a favor, if you go to Millie Weaver's profile, her pinned tweet is about a three minute video about the Sunrise Zoom Calls investigation. And you can listen in their own words of exactly what 
they were planning on these calls. And you can kind of put contextualize this. And some of the, the, the video, the imagery that shows on the screen is various different maps where all the police stations are located, ha- different access maps to the White House, different access maps to the, cap- to the Capitol grounds. And then listen to what they have to say. Adam, if you can grab that, let me know when you're ready. Adam, are you talking? I can't hear you. Yeah, Adam, are you there? I can't hear your auto, but audio, buddy. Okay. Well, when we when it comes back, are you thumb up at me? You're ready to go, Adam, or are you trying to fix it? Okay. So, back to the documents. Um, Transition Integrity Project. Take a look at that. That's the war game exercise. Go look at the count. I highlighted page 35. You can look through the entire thing. Uh, there's also a um, about an hour and a half video confirming, number one, the existence of this document because they had the authors, Zach Mallets and Becky Bond, on an actual uh, uh, podcast stream, and they were deep diving the document, explaining exactly what they meant by what they wrote. And I've watched it, and there's some damning stuff in there as well, especially when they're talking about election day versus counting all the votes and how they wanted to make sure that they maintained perception in the public that by counting votes for the next week or so was completely legitimate because we need to count every vote and every vote matters. And one of the things that he says in the clip, and I clipped it today, I just didn't include it anywhere. He says, we know that Trump will be winning on election night, but as long as we count all the votes and he doesn't, he doesn't perform a coup on the government, then we know that he will lose decisively when all the votes are counted. And you start looking back at all the plans they put together and you start to ask some questions. Adam, do you have audio now? Nope. Undercover inside the Sunrise Movement oh. was able to obtain exclusive video footage inside Zoom chats where shutdown DC, BLM, and other leftist organizations are coordinating a multi-level coup action exercise utilizing insider help from Democrat Party members as well as federal employees and intelligence contractors. I'm a management and programs analyst. I work in the national security community. I spent three and a half years um, as a contractor at DHS HQ. If you read the mainstream press, like they all have signal accounts, text them, leak everything you can. The journalists I've dealt with have been super ethical in ways to shield me to be the source of the leaks. Groups on the outside being able to show uh, solidarity with federal workers. Making sure that we're naming what is happening as a coup. Totally agreed in the shutdown DC conversations that I've been having and that's not on the federal side. We um, also are often saying that we call it a coup. They plan to shut down Washington DC and other major US cities starting November 4th until inauguration day. Do we have any plans for how to respond if there's a coup? Come to BLM Plaza um, anytime after 4 p.m. on election night. On the 5th, we're going to shut down the White House. Map the White House and know every access point so we knew we could blockade it. On the 6th, we're going to shut down uh, larger parts of Washington, D.C. We've been working on a target map and a framework for scenario. So where are all the police stations? Where are all the key government buildings? Who are the Trump boosters? 
members of Congress that are coming in. Um, we're going to meet them at the airports or at Union Station um, and send them back to where they came from until we deal with the, the situation that we're in. We are going to be in a crisis, but we want it to be one that we are creating. Whoever's got the guns can win. Let's take over the buildings. If there are people that are willing to do that, we should support them. Get ready to shut your city down on the 4th or the 5th. Regardless of who wins, the left plans to take over. So there's a couple things that stand out there. Lisa Fithian was the one. If you guys don't know who she is by now, get, get familiar with her. She's one of the protest extraordinaires. She is definitely one of the leftist protest group queens. And she was talking about whoever has the guns. And also, we're going to shut down all the buildings and enter the buildings. And here's the police stations and so on and so forth. That's who was talking there. But I want to point out something that you heard in that in, in that it was in regards to some of these documents that they had. And they were talking about how they were going to make sure that there's no way they were going to allow Congress to meet to be able to actually litigate any of the irregularities uh, during the voting process on January 6th. And so when Darren Beatty, and I've been watching him closely, he's been covering the pipe bomb thing, I think, the longest. And I've been waiting to see how they're going to cut it off, where, where the information is going to come from. And I just had questions about, in regards to what you just heard, kind of what they were planning and were they involved with members? I just don't know. I don't, these are questions. These are not, these are not um, suppositions. I'm just, I'm asking because when I look at all of this and I see these documents and, and again, like I said, we, we've got an entire library. We're trying to release it as much as possible. It's, it's just so much to go through. Everything that has a hyperlink is hyperlinked to something else that goes to a Russian doll situation with seven different layers of funding going all the way up to Arabella and FTX and Omidyar and all these, all these groups. And then you start looking at where the money's going and where it's shifting. And it's just a lot to go through. And, but these calls are damning. And this is one of the most censored stories in 2020 on Twitter 1.0 that came out in the Twitter files. It was number eight out of, I think out of 10, it was like 500,000 plus posts and accounts that were talking about it were completely banned or suspended. So that's why this is, there's a lot of questions around this. And, you know, one of the things that I discovered was also these these Marxist trainings. I put that thread out, I don't know, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, and then Millie put out the thing that she put out yesterday. And so I think this leads us, I just have questions. Is it connected with the pipe bombs? Is that coincidence? Because the way that it seems to be understood with the pipe bomb scenario, that 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 was be a backup plan saying, oh no, look at these crazy MAGA people. They're gonna they're gonna try to bomb the, the future Mrs. Vice President. But Dan, that's an important question. Why was she not celebrating a win, a victory? Why was she at the DNC? And why was she so cavalier about, oh, yeah, no, I had a meeting. I, so I was at the Capitol, and then I had a meeting, and they said we had to go. She had several interviews after this supposed incident happened. Never mentioned it once. Dan pointed out also today, I think it was really important to note, 160,000-plus posts after the grenade incident with Bush over in Georgia. But... No mention of this other than Darren Beatty, Julie Kelly and him. It leaves you with some questions. And so I don't know. I kind of wanted to paint that picture. I'm not trying to solve the, the, the story here. But when we're looking at this stuff, I just have questions. I don't know what you guys think with my panel. Gosh, but, it's actually uh, worse than that. Um, so, okay. uh, I can't really divulge um, the extent of my involvement in some of this stuff. But uh, I can tell you. Well, no. Uh, let me just comment on this specific thing, which is that it's it's a lot worse than that because not only has Kamala Harris, you know, had been mum about this, but um, it was a huge, huge um, 
deal to even get the disclosure of her, of her even being at the DNC building. It took 10 months for the disclosure to be that she was at the DNC building. And it took about a year for, for, uh, for the timing of it to come out that she was there, you know, basically, uh, and, and like drove by the pipe bomb, you know, specifically on, on, on that morning with that the secret service, uh, you know, took her right by the pipe bomb. And this actually had very big implications for, uh, for, for many January six cases, not only, did so she refused to disclose it wasn't like nobody asked her um she was the missing link actually on the on the security overview that the feds were trying to put together for the security lapses and the so-called intelligence failure everyone said well where was kamala harris that day because her being her and mike pence being at the capitol was the reason that it was a restricted zone that was the, that was the you know normally you're allowed to go the Capitol is public property. But the reason that those barricades had the legal force that they did with respect to the federal charge of trespassing was because of the alleged presence of Kamala Harris and Mike Pence as the VIPs there. So there was there was a legal significance to that. And even worse, um, the Justice Department was uh, assumed that Kamala Harris was on or around Capitol grounds the whole time. In fact, for the, the entire first year of January 6th prosecutions, they were arguing to judges that uh, that one of the reasons that some of the people were sort of, a, uh, you know, sort of Ku Klux Klan act adjacent or or should have uh, sort of, you know, the book thrown out of, out of them was because of a sort of racially animated uh, sight of them chasing around the first you know, uh, black female uh, vice president elect within the building. But it turned out she wasn't there and the justice department actually had to go back a year after the fact and update uh in fact even resubmit things to a grand jury because they had lied to a judge that kamala harris was at the capitol and when it came out that she was actually right by the pipe bomb at the dnc building they had to resubmit and refile things with the grand jury so not only was she not sort of probed about it not only did she keep mum but she kept mum as people were indicted for uh, allegedly trying to terrify her at a place she wasn't even at. So they kept that not only such a secret from the American people, but from their own federal prosecutors. Yeah, that is, that is far more pernicious. <laughs> that is, that's awful. And, and again, that, that would explain why she was never talking about it, because she was just letting it go. And they were using it uh, to further this January 6th narrative. And there's a lot of people that suffered from it. And, and again, I think we're going to get into this a little bit. And Cal's joined us. I believe you're now on your full setup on this uh, DNC pipe bomb. It, it, I, yeah. I, again, I'm chasing plan A because it's all the documents I have. But uh, what you guys are doing and looking at plan B here, there's a lot of questions. I, I think you raised excellent points, number one. And I think it kind of goes into a lot of the content that's being discussed over the last week and the last few years, really, like you pointed out. So I'm interested to kind of get down on this. And Kyle, it looks like you've joined us now in your official capacity. Am I official now? Is that what that what we're saying? Yeah. I mean, now you're in front of your throne. Well, I am not actually. I'm still working my way up there, but I'm at my house on the Wi-Fi. So that's better than nothing. Um, so so it's also worth noting, too, as we're looking at this stuff, right, that not only do they have to go back and get superseding indictments and go back to a grand jury and ask for uh, corrected fact patterns, which were false beforehand. This, the second piece is that uh, 
over and over. And and January 6th complaints, we could get into that even deeper, actually. But the, the complaints that are written there are written unlike any other criminal complaints because they constantly are adding facts that have nothing to do with any individual's case. They have this huge section of the fact pattern, the affidavit, that just like continually tells us about what went on that day and how bad it was and that there were bombs found and people were bad. And then like this person was like in a place they weren't supposed to be. Like, what the hell does that have to do with anything other than it just shades the mindset of these magistrate judges who are signing off on the arrest warrants, which is what the criminal complaint accomplishes. So a lot of the stuff that's going on, it's it's so unusual. You know, they basically rewrote a brand new protocol for what would otherwise be law enforcement um, and is no longer law enforcement. I don't know what the hell it is. Political activism, I guess. But the, the things the FBI has done to go after the people that were involved in January 6th and the way that it's presented the case into the judicial system it's it's unlike any other there's no other case pattern that is like this and you know when you have false statements and you have to go back and get them get them resworn out like that could happen if it was a mistake but this is not a mistake because it's not a mistake because the investigators had you know access to all the information they just sort of made some stuff up and other parts of the government were adding false information so consider this thing why on earth has Kamala Harris not been running around crowing about how she was almost killed on that day? And all these bad things almost happened to her because there was a bomb outside the place where she was. You know, we've got a victim that loves to, to tell you how everything is wrong and bad and everyone's sexist and racist and, you know, misogynistic, et cetera. And yet we don't see her running around and doing that. And let me add this one more. I'm going to throw this more grenade and then we'll see what uh, uh, George has to say. But why have we not seen a, a massive on award program? You know, we saw uh, that officers who were in the Capitol Police were given awards for things that either didn't happen or didn't happen the way that they were said. We see a guy who shot a woman in the neck and uh, nothing happened to him. He was able to keep his job, apparently. And then we've got a guy who apparently, while, a while in plain clothes, was walking past and spotted a pipe bomb that could have been meant for the, for the future VP of this country. And he didn't get an award for his like outstanding, you know, looking out his his eagle eye. He didn't get the Hawkeye award of whatever the United States Capitol Police is for spotting a bomb on the ground. What kind of shit is that? Like, what what planet are we living on where we're gonna buy that this guy went out there and basically saved everybody nearby? And then of course nobody behaved like it was an actual bomb. But that's another story. We'll get there next. He didn't get an award. We haven't heard anything about him. How come he hasn't been paraded out there? How come the president call him out and give him a medal for saving his number two? You know, none of this stuff happened. That adds so many more suspicious questions into the mix. It none of it is be, none of it is being treated as though that bomb was legit, and none of it is being treated like it was a bomb at all, and none of it is being treated like it was a surprise that it was there. Let's just start with that part as we continue on. No, then uh, exactly right. I mean, you we watch the footage like there's kind of laissez-faire like oh bomb and there's people you can see them where they're conferring and saying hey i found a bomb and you see people just standing on the street they didn't block anybody off they didn't move anybody away there was no kind of threat of danger you can watch it yourself and it's it's it's, it's just like they're like oh yeah i guess this part of the plan didn't go i don't know those are my those are my questions i'm not speaking for them there's no there's been no investigation proper investigation there's been no i from what from public knowledge there's no interviews of any of these people maybe there is maybe it'll come out eventually but i didn't see that happening so there actually there are some interviews that have been done they've been done by members of congress um there is obviously an investigation going on by the guys of the blaze and steve baker is part of it so some of that does exist and some of it is no is not public yet both from blaze 
and from the congressional investigators. And yet, it doesn't look good when somebody reports that there's a bomb 15 feet away from your vehicle and you're a law enforcement officer and you go back to eating your sandwich, which is what Steve Baker has explained to me went on while this was all happening. Right, right. That's, that's, and that's what I'm letting credence to. I get, I'm waiting for the reports to come out because what I have to go on is the video on uh, the video that I've seen uh, that kind of surfaced recently that came out, the full video. Uh, but even so, that's not even full. And I think one of the other points that needs to be noted, and, and Senior Chief, I'm coming to you. Uh, one of the other thing, points I think needs to be noted is that even Dan pointed out today as well, there was somebody that mans that camera. So if they're manning that camera, they saw it being placed. Where's that footage? And I think we're going to get into the construction of the bomb, too, with your content, Kyle. But uh, Senior Chief, let me go to you and kind of add some uh, more color in the lines here. Sure. So in fairness, it really was a good sandwich that had to be finished. So, I mean, there's that. But seriously, Kyle raised a lot of points. And I want to point out a name that is often nobody ever mentions, a guy by the name of Steve Jensen. So. Steve D'Antuono and Steve Jensen on January 7th, twice a day for over a month, instituted a nationwide conference call that, that anybody who had the number could dial in. But it was sent out to all the fusion centers, 56 fusion centers. So if the, your audience or anyone here is not familiar with the fusion centers, it's a post 9-11 construct and they're staffed jointly by state police, some contractors, state police analysts, and FBI personnel, as well as um, Homeland Security. And the fusion centers have a direct reporting mechanism to the governor. So if there's something serious going on in the fusion center, the governor knows about it. So Beginning on January 7th, twice a day for over a month, Steve D'Antuono would come on and he would like old school free will Baptist church evangelize 56 offices. And just, just let's just be generous or I'm sorry, let's be stingy with the math and say that there were 10 people in those 56 fusion offices, uh, fusion centers listening to those conference calls. There's over 500 people getting worked up twice a day by Steve D'Antuono, how our democracy almost fell. And the language was beyond, you know, hyperbolic. I gave testimony to Congress about this. D'Antuono denied that, that and other surrogates of his came to his defense and said, no, he was not hyperventilating and not hyperbolic. I was on the calls. I've got over 26 years in uniform, combat tours. This is not a guy you'd want to follow into a bad situation. And then Steve Jensen came on, and he was kind of like the nuts and bolts guy. So let's put this into perspective. You're, you're broadcasting out using the megaphone that is the FBI to 50 governors through their fusion centers and through reporting mechanisms, both oral, oral and, and written, you're, you're broadcasting this message using the full force and, and authority of the FBI that our country almost fell on January the 6th. That narrative is important you know, because it ties together everything else. 
Then there was secret reporting on, on the pipe bomb. And they lied to their own personnel. And a, a friend of mine who is FBI EOD even said to me, this is, this is not a viable device. So they were well prepared to, to craft this narrative to a wide audience. So it's no wonder, and Kyle had pointed it out, that these magistrates and these grand juries are just rolling right over because up until January 5th, they were you know, largely ignorant, you know, hopefully apolitical. And then this, this, this stream of consciousness comes out of Stephen D'Antuono and Steve Jensen. So it's, it's no wonder it's hard to, to, uh, to get through that noise into any kind of constructive narrative. Right. And that's what seems to be the, the flooding of the zone of, you know, emotional, uh, you know, the, the attack on our democracy, same BS lines, you know, and basically, like, I think Kyle, what Kyle pointed out is very important. Uh, Mike pointed out as well, specifically the judges and how the zone was being flooded with all this language and being led to believe facts that weren't actually facts at all, but they were simply just put out into the ether. There was no actual factual basis to them, no real clear investigations into it. And then when anything was, it was silenced, it was suppressed. And what you're bringing up here is that these fusion centers, and like you said, D'Antuano going on the stream of consciousness, basically crafting this story and telling a really beautiful story and convincing all these leaders around the, around the country of what, of, of letting them arrive at their own conclusions of predetermined conclusions. And it seems to be, I, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but that's what seems to be that what you're saying here is that they, that's what they were doing, right? Absolutely. I even wrote a short article for um, DC Undercover um, that, that Kyle and Tracy helped me with. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, th that narrative started, you know, within hours. And I'm going to throw it out there, if I may. But Lara Logan, L-A-R-A Logan, I, I'm hopefully some most people know who she is. But she postulated a theory that Michael Flynn, I'm sorry, Michael Flynn, Jesus, Stanley McChrystal, um, is pulling some of the strings on this because it's clear to me now, having spent oh, almost 35 years in the intelligence sphere, both in counterintelligence, conducting operations overseas, psychological warfare, that this wasn't something that just fell into the lap of Nancy Pelosi and company on January 6th. This had been in the works, probably in conjunction with the Transition Integrity Project. Right. Which, again, for those of you that may have just joined us, the Transition Integrity Project was a wargaming exercise of what the elections would look like, what different dates that are constitutional in the election process, how that would play out, what what Trump team would do in a win. I think the third scenario, there was a Trump win. But out of the four that they ran, only Trump won once and the other times Biden won. And and how they would react, and they wargamed it out to the T of exactly how it would go. And this was a project that they did, and they released the document in August of 2020. And this was done by the the, the common characters, you know, Norm Eisen and, and many of the other power players, Niles Gilman and uh, Rosa Brooks out of the out of the Bergruen Institute in LA. And they devised this document. The document is actually down in the chat up in the nest. I have a post called the Documents Thread. It's going to have the TIP. It's going to have the count that I was referencing earlier. It's also going to have some other additional reporting from Revolver News about Norm Eisen, David Brock memo from 2017, a lot of these other things. All that's going to be down there. There was also another one that came out as well. I'm not going to dive into it because I want to stay on the pipe bomb. Uh, but there was also a document that came out called the VPP. And this was directly related to the National Guard inside D.C. 
So I'm going to go grab that. But I, I think it's important to note, senior, like, I agree with you. I think a lot of this was gamed out way in advance. Everybody knew what the plan was. It's what it seems to me. And this is kind of where I was talking about it with plan A. But what's going on with the pipe bomb, I think, is is really concerning. And Kyle, you put out uh, some tweets today regarding this. Specifically, you were, I think you were quoting back at, uh, at, at Thomas Massey. And can you kind of like go into this a little bit? I think I think people would like to know this was it's up in the nest. And it was the Steve Duantuono's, uh technically quote my boss on January 6th. You were the ADI uh, as the ADIC. Sure. Um, so it's kind of me just punching my ex-girlfriend in the mouth because she's awful. She being the FBI. If you guys don't follow what I, uh, I she's kind of like a psycho ex-girlfriend. If you have an ex-girlfriend like the FBI, you should try to change your name and relocate. So essentially the story was this um steve d'antuano was the assistant director in charge of the washington field office which was a pretty powerful position in the fbi it is usually a springboard to greatness i'll use the word greatness in air quotes because uh, i don't think there's anything great about being in senior leadership for the fbi because there's no leadership there's only management but all that being said d'antuano's name may be familiar to you because he was the special agent in charge of the detroit field office which oversaw the whitmer case now i'm not alleging and that would be foolish to say that steve d'antuano ran the whitmer case because that's not true that's not how cases work if you work in the fbi what happens is a gs-13 or below but generally a gs-13 and maybe somebody else is running the case that's the that's the pay grade level there's a gs-14 who is the frontline supervisor there's a GS-15 who's known as the assistant special agent in charge. And those people kind of all handle operational details of whether you are a criminal investigator, whether you are a counterterrorism investigator, whether you're a counterintelligence investigator, uh, whether you're doing some sort of operational things. We call them uh, operations or intelligence divisions. So different types of work you can do. But you've got this chain of command. And above that is where Steve D'Antuano was, which is the special agent in charge. Generally speaking, uh, that, that's a special or a, a senior executive service. So they're off the GS pay scale. So again, a 13, 14, 15, and then the next guy is, is the SES. Uh, that being said, D'Antuano went from being in charge of the office that handled Whitmer, and then probably on the strength of that wonderful breakup, was able to get over and promoted to the Washington field office. Interestingly, uh, one of my buddies brought this up, and I'm not 100% sure that I've got all the details on it, but the prior... Uh, ADIC is what we call him, assistant director in charge. The prior ADIC was a guy named Tim Slater. And Slater was somehow caught in some very, very precarious situation during the summer of 2020, the, the riots that went on outside the White House and stuff like that, and was put in a position where he was actually behind what we'll call, quote unquote, enemy lines of the wild leftist protesters and had to be like evacuated in some sort of sketchy way. They had to go and get a team to get him out. Uh, he was probably never in any physical danger, but probably didn't really like the idea of being back there because um, from everything I knew about him, he thought pretty highly of himself. And he resigned with no notice on a Friday afternoon uh, without telling anybody that was coming from a position that you would normally continue to springboard into the FBI's stratosphere. And so that didn't happen for him. D'Antuana wasn't on the list, but he got promoted into that spot. And D'Antuano's background is that he was a CPA. I think he was a support employee. And we were just trying to figure it out. My, my buddies and I were talking about it. I'm not sure if he's ever had a real job other than the FBI. He may have been like an honors intern who has only ever had FBI jobs. And those are not real jobs if that's the only jobs you've ever had in your life. So that's pretty weird. Anyway, he's a, he's a company man, 100%. And he's not particularly uh, strong-willed. And we don't think very highly of him in my little organization of the suspendables. And the FBI people that end up listening to this will, will hear that we don't think highly of him. Um, he was 
was spineless and weak in a place when he could have been stronger and he was ruled by subordinates, which is kind of funny because that's actually been leaked by some of the testimony that was done. But the thread specifically, and I'm setting this all up just because I'm telling you that I, I just don't think very highly of Steve D'Antuano and I'm giving you why. Um, the thread was the deposition that Thomas Massey participated in, which was a, a sworn testimony for Massey to ask questions and try to get to the bottom of whatever they wanted to know. And the pipe bomber and January 6th stuff was on the list. He was the where the buck should stop as the ADIC, as the highest ranking guy in the Washington field office where that, that case was being worked out of. And there's a couple of weird things that are strange anomalies that we only know because I was in that office. Number one, the pipe bomb case was assigned to a squad that was called CI-14, Counterintelligence 14. And counter Counterintelligence 14, by mission, was a Russian espionage squad. That's what they did. They ran espionage cases and Russian counterintelligence things that were actionable and prosecutable. They had the, uh, and they probably still have, I'm sure, the Edward Snowden prosecution case, which is never going to result in anything most likely, but they they kept it. They have it. It's an ongoing investigation forever, uh, unless Snowden comes back or is pardoned or something. So they had that kind of stuff. Why they inherited the pipe bomber case after January 6th is absolutely beyond me, but I have pretty strong information that that was the case. I have friends that went to the academy with me that were on that squad and they told me they were working on it. I don't know why they were working on it. It doesn't make any sense. Incidentally, that case was also, or that squad rather, CI-14, was also the case that got the search warrant for Miralago and worked the, the so-called documents case against President Trump. So do what you want with that information, but those are just data points that exist in the world that I'll just spin off and you guys can you know, digest them and do what you want. Um, my role in this particular investigation was assigned to a, uh, a special operations group, which is a, a, um, a surveillance team. And we were assigned a person of interest. This is why I know anything about this case at all, because I started asking questions because my surveillance team was assigned to follow somebody that we believed or we were told was likely the person who had put the bombs in place. And we had some pretty credible information that involved financial records. It involved a license plate. It involved security cam footage. It involved tracking across security cameras across the entire area. It involved the Metro card and tiebacks to financials and a name and an address. And we were in front of a front door for a number of days and then we were called off. And because of that surveillance, which was supposedly of someone that was either directly related to or may have been the bomber, the questions that we started asking right away was, hey, um, are these devices legit? Were we in danger of encountering somebody who was moving around with explosives and was willing to drop them in a public place? And the answer we got back was no, they were not. In fact, the, the, my recollection was looked very bomb-like was essentially the uh, the diagnosis of what these things were. Um, so looked very bomb-like is not the same thing as actual bomb. That's a distractionary device and or inert device and or training device or whatever it may be. But the rule was right away there. The second thing was we were told, uh, or we are being me and maybe some of the guys that I knew that were friends with folks that dealt with the counter IED or the render safe mission, which is the FBI's you know post-blast analysis usually, but they would basically deal with bombs and they would take them down to the Charlie demo range at Quantico, and they would either study them or blow them up. And they were always doing projects down there. And I was there a number of times as a medic where we were watching them create pipe bombs and detonate pipe bombs and figure out how pipe bombs might be made from various different things. So these guys dealt with bombs all the time. I'm fairly confident that people like Steve D'Antuano has probably never touched any explosive devices. And so interestingly enough, he gives this deposition, and one of the things that happened, which I didn't know until today, is Thomas Massey apparently asked Steve D'Antuano, who, once again, my former boss's 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 boss, 
and said, uh, are you familiar with the situation that Kyle Serafin has exposed, saying that these were inert devices? And Steve D'Antuano, and, and what I can only imagine was somewhat sarcastic, said, yes, I'm familiar with Mr. Serafin. Uh, I know that he's out there talking about the stuff. I don't know who Kyle knows or who he's been talking to. So he's saying whatever he's saying from his view and his perch. Uh, but uh, I'm not privy to whoever he knows necessarily. And I can only go on what the FBI's bomb lab says. And the laboratory division down at Quantico tells us that these devices were viable. And so that's what I'm going to do. And he threw in a little parting shot. I don't know what Kyle's expertise on bomb making is. And so that opened an interesting door for me. That, so what you're seeing in that little thread there is one, my response to Thomas Massey, um, which is a number of my concerns. Uh, the most of which that is that has landed on me is why in the world did Steve D'Antuano, the top guy at the Washington field office, who theoretically should have known all of the most important things that were happening on this case, not know jack shit about the case, but he knew what I was saying in the media about the case. That to me is incredibly strange. And it kind of tells you a lot about how the FBI operates. We've got people that are supposed to be doing oversight of their own offices and they don't know anything, but they know what's being said about things in the media. That's bizarre. Um, and then the second thing is you open the door up to ask about bomb making experience of which I have, I don't know, uh, maybe 75 or 100 hours worth of bomb making experience. So I'm no by no means an expert, but I've built, you know, C4 and um, I've used military demolitions, whether they be a commercial dynamite or military dynamite, and so on. And I've done electric and non-electric and I know how they're initiated and I understand how the things work. So that's probably more than Steve D'Antuano could say. So like I said, not an expert, but uh, I'm probably better at making bombs right now, given the material than he has been as a CPA, considering he's never been a CPA in his life. He's just been an FBI employee. And apparently, and I took a little shot at him in that thread, so I might as well mention it, is that he works for this company, a large, large accounting firm that's called CPMG. And we've got sources everywhere. And the sources tell us that He's not even covering his own salary. So who knows when he's going to get parachuted out of that job. So he's not very good at what he does. He got hired, you know, as kind of a uh, an administrative state back scratching is our speculation. And I'm saying that on a recorded space. So come at me. Anyhow, that's what I got for that one. No, no. I, I think it's a great point. And like, listen, I'm going to drop an anecdote here. Like you actually dropping facts and experience. I'm going to drop an anecdote. And so as I've been looking at the story, and obviously I've been following Darren Beatty's reporting, and, and obviously I'm following what Dan's talking about, what you're talking about here, and I'm paying close attention. I do have an ex-girlfriend. She was EOD, uh, Air Force EOD, and she was deployed, I don't know, six or seven times, and and she works for DHS now, and I sent her some photos. I said, hey, what do you think about this? She's like, is this a joke? And she, like, keep in mind, she's pretty lefty. Like, we don't disagree. We don't agree politically on a lot of things. She was Air Force EOD, and she definitely knows what she's talking about. She's taught at the schoolhouse. Like, she knows this stuff. And she's like, is this a joke? And I said, do you know what this is? And she said, uh, she said, no. I mean, like, is this a meme? I said, no, this is a, this is a, apparently the pipe bomb that was placed at DNC headquarters on January 6th. And she's like, what the, what the F is this? I'm like, I don't know. Like, do you know anything about this? She's like, no. Cause like her and I, I, I like I said, I, again, we disagree politically, but like, you know, I mean, there's still some common sense there, but I, if, if there's one question that I have about explosives or something, Trust me, I'm going to go to her. I mean, she, she taught at the schoolhouse forever. She she had several deployments. And so when she said, I don't know what the hell this is, but is this a joke? It started raising my antenna. This was a while back. And, and whenever the first photos actually released is when I sent it to her to try to get feedback. This is just an anecdote. So I'm not, gonna, I'm not offering this as evidence. Just to be clear to the people that are listening, I'm simply saying that people with experience in this looked at this and laughed at it. Well, the and, reason, so and, and Aaron, the reason why is pretty specific. Like, number one, when you say the word viable, and this is what I've actually, I, I DM this over to, to, to 
Representative Massey, and I hope they take this to account. I would like a functional definition of what the word viable means to the FBI lab division. Because if the word viable means that it checks all the boxes that say that an explosive device has a casing, which that has, that it has explosive residue or some sort of explosive material, which that may have had, even if it was as small as a black hat, um, that it has an initiation device, which is like a timer or a cell phone or any other kind of like remote detonation option, or it has a fuse. Those are the ways you could do that basically, electric or non-electric. It has a power source, which that had a battery, and then the wires of the transmission for the for the power source you know to the ignition if that's what they're checking the box as and that equals viable even though it doesn't equal legit explosive the way that we would hear the word viable because if you said is that a viable bomb and i said yes then we wouldn't want to be in the same room with it that's not the same thing as if they said well it's viable because it has all the parts of a bomb whether it works or not and so that's the real i think the question we have to hone in on and anybody who's seen improvised explosives looked at these things and they go the, the silly things about it are it's got a it's got a cap it's got wires that run inside of it but those wires are not sealed in place generally speaking you'd either use like a clay or a glue or a putty or something to keep those wires so they stay where they are so they can actually initiate the explosion uh and uh and i'm happy to be corrected by anybody who's got a lot more experience but you don't want your initiation wires to be running around and not anchored into place so this is one of those silly things that you, you're putting that thing down there this also in january it's chilly out you're gonna have atmospheric problems you don't necessarily want like moisture and things getting in so there's a lot of like goofy things about this that looks very bomb like which is what it looks like to anybody who's ever kind of messed around with this stuff and then it doesn't look like an actual bomb, though. It just looks very bomb-like. It could be really useful for training a dog, for example, or for training brand-new troops. When you go through, like, even the FBI has, like, a, what they call an OCONUS deployment. I can't remember what it's called. Uh, George will maybe remember. But they do it, like, where they actually rotate people overseas. And they put them through this sort of, like, OCONUS training where they, like, learn what IEDs look like. And it's a modified kind of weak version of SEER school where they kind of tell them, like, hey, if you get rolled up, like, you know, cry really fast and tell them to bring you to the, uh, you know, the embassy or whatever. So they, they, they use these kind of things to make people spot wires and potential initiators and so on. But like, does it look like the real deal? But you still have to treat it like that in public. That's the thing. Even if you can look at it and go like, oh, I see some like major construction problems with this thing. You'd still treat it real if you found it in the wild, if you're walking on the street as a Capitol police officer. And that's why so much of this stuff doesn't make sense because the response, basically the stimulus and the response don't align in this case when you're right. watching the video. Right. And that's the point I was trying to make. The reason I brought up when she laughed at me for sending it to her, she thought I was sending her a meme, was because I, I'm trying to actually convey the point that this is a political narrative messaging type event with no real threat. And no one seemed to treat it as a threat at all, as we reviewed in this content. Therefore, not being a threat, what is its motivation? Well, it's political. It's narrative. Add it's, to the, add, yeah, add to that, okay? Anybody who's a reasonable human being listening to this can, can do their own analysis. It's very quick and easy. The single most potentially dare, uh, dangerous thing to anybody directly on January 6th was two indiscriminate explosive devices left in public without any idea of when they might go off or who they might hurt and who might be there when that happens because they're on a timer in theory. So that's the most terroristic act that you can have, which we kind of kind of highlighted and I probably yelled at you guys while I was driving. Now, add to the fact that we are dealing with a an organization, the FBI, that has basically stood up three full squads 
fully staffed with analysts and analytical people and agents and investigators and supervisors, and they have all the resources to do everything. And they're running down basic trespassers, and they seem to be doing something very different than running after the person that seems like it's okay to drop indiscriminate explosive devices in a public area, particularly our national capital. That seems like something that we should really want to get down. I could have 30 agents run after somebody who's dropping pipe bombs in the national capital, and I'd be like, well, that seems about right until you figure out who it is. They've never found that person. They've never alluded to that being a failure by not finding them. They kind of are like, oh, well, obviously we're doing our best and the data was corrupted. Like, what else could we do? Blah. Like, that's not how real people talk about real serious problems. And then the last thing is what we watch in the prosecution end is that they basically went after all the small fries and the people that were the most obviously um, you know, sort of narrative focus. They went after a Jacob Chansley because he was very visible and he made a great figurehead, but they went after a bunch of small fry, uh, you know, misuse of the Sarbanes-Oxley statutes. And they went after essentially uh, all, all these trespassing charges, building this snowball of work until the snowball had its own weight to the point where they're like, they can now point to, there have been 1200 prosecutions successfully of all these people so what's another, you know, thousand of them? They've already got the weight of work behind it. That's that's that is the, uh, you know, it justifies the the ongoing work that's going to continue. It's like, yo, oh, how how do you know we're going to be successful, and why do you think it's a good idea? Because we've been successful in court this number of times, and all these people are in jail because of our great work. Look how wonderful we are, and we're going to do more of it. And everyone goes like, I got it, we accept it. So that's worth noting that they went after like not violent. Not really. They they built they worked their way up to the so-called you know seditionist cases and all that stuff. And uh, and I'm curious what George popped up on there too because I was like seeing him looking from behind the glass. Can I just say something real quick here too? Um, never, Mike. You could never you could never interrupt me. What are you doing? No, this is amazing. This is awesome <laughs> stuff. You know, I just um I, I've been I heard about this sort of Plan A Plan B dichotomy you guys were fleshing out before. Um, but, you know, it's it's really also important to keep in mind the logistical role that the pipe bombs played in actually carrying out the breach. So the if according to the timeline, the Capitol Police were notified of the first pipe bomb at 12.48 p.m. One minute later, 12.49 p.m. was when the was when the first wave of protesters uh, walked up to the Penn walkway entrance to begin, uh, to begin the assault on that initial perimeter. And then 1253 was when that initial breach was. So it was one minute after the Capitol police were notified that the, that they leapt into action to actually begin the first breach. This is why Steve, this is why Stephen son, the Capitol police chief, you know, uh, basically posited the pipe that the pipe bombs were a diversion because they were looking at a scenario where they had a bunch of hooligans not with, without weapons uh, approaching a thinly, a thinly lined perimeter, but the outer perimeter, really the third limb, uh, perimeter before they would actually get to the Capitol building itself versus a mass casualty event a block and a half away. And so they pulled resources uh, in the confusion of the pipe bomb information being delivered to them. And uh, that's that's why Stephen Sun said the pipe bomb played that critical role of splitting the Capitol Police response to the perimeter breach. Now, there's a couple of other things, too, that I think are important to keep in mind here, which are the the D.C. fusion cell under Donnell Harvin actually placed phone calls 
uh, I believe on January 4th and 5th to local hospitals, uh, telling them to, uh, to stock up on extra blood supplies because there might be a, quote, mass casualty event. There was also a mass casualty event alluded to in the Jeffrey Rosen-led AG sort of, you know, uh, <laughs> the, the special mission, um, if you guys remember hearing about this with the special commandos and everything that, that, that uh, Jeffrey Rosen was leading from the Justice Department, I believe, with some Quantico support. Um, and, uh, you know, and that, that also involved potential, quote, weapons of mass destruction, which, which is a technical term, by the way, for pipe bombs. Uh, if you, you know, for example, in the, Whit in the Whitmer fednapping case, uh, they were charged with a conspiracy to construct weapons of mass destruction uh, for constructing pipe bombs. And it was, again, that same thing. It was federal agents who had pitched the Whitmer crew, um, the three percenters there, uh, on building a pipe bomb. That's what they got nabbed for. And that's, and, you know, they literally planted and tried to train them to use pipe bombs. And, of course, it was Stephen D'Antuano himself who would then go on to be in charge of, you know, the D.C. FBI on January 6th and the, the pipe bomb, you know, investigation, obviously, by, by proxy. So, you, and not only, and you have these very other, you know, strange things, Ray Epps told, uh, in, the, in the transcribed interviews that the Epic Times got a hold of, told the FBI that he thought that there would be pipe bombs on, on the side streets, which is why he stuck to the main road. Uh, there was there was so much advanced knowledge of some sort of pipe bomby type event. This again is now so you have the fusion center, you have uh, you have the strange parallel between the, the pipe bomb plot with the with the with the FBI head who had just transferred over. Then you've got the, the apparent Ray Epps foreknowledge. And then you have the fact that it was just one minute after Capitol Police were notified that the actual breach began. And we know that that initial breach there, there were, there were dozens of people with, with, with headsets and who seemed to be plugged into some sort of coordinated action. Um, so it all lined up beautifully for this to basically serve as the superseding threat so that the initial stages of the breach could, could set off. So even if it wasn't, you know, I'm not necessarily convinced about like plan A, plan, plan B type thing, because it fits so well into the plan A of the Fed's direction itself. Well, Mike, and that's the slowest I've ever heard you talk. So like, I, I appreciate you must be having like a beverage and relaxing. <laughs> and I'm not sure what I like better. I kind of like high speed. Mike. Yeah, um, <laughs> if you want, if you want to, you know, drink a Coke or something. So one one of the things that I think is interesting, we're assuming that that two pipe bombs equals uh, they're both part of the same plan, and and I don't necessarily know that that's the case. When I when I look at it, just we're, this is full speculation, but you think one pipe bomb, you know, outside of the RNC draws forces away, gets people riled up, you know, like you said, weakens the line, et cetera, et cetera. That is that's a potential plan A, a plan B especially the way that it was executed by these guys who find a bomb and act in a way that does not, that defies all, it defies all bomb discovery behavior. Like as a law enforcement person, you have to treat it like it's legit. As somebody who's a protector, you know, in the secret service, if you have a protectee in the building and you're on a, on a detail, I cannot imagine that you don't just go into like whatever your protocol is for explosive device in the area, do the next thing. And that's gotta be evacuate, you know, figure out your, your routes, you know, 
you don't you're not worried about whether or not the you know it looks bad or anything else your job is 100% focused on making sure that person survives whatever this encounter is so all those things lead me to kind of the if it's a plan a plan b scenario plan a equals one one is distractionary device and it pulls forces away and you know makes people go and set up a cordon and all your local cops are there and then you can breach capital but if they don't we've always got Kamala hanging out in a building she's not saying she's in and we can always make that the threat where it's like oh god they almost got the vice president in this other place that she wasn't supposed to be in and she secretly just happened to be at and nobody knew she was going to be there and why would anybody expect her to be there but sure enough there was a bomb there too you know like that to me rings of the plane well, and it gets weirder well, than that too because there's a there's a very very strange situation that i can i it, it kills me every day of my life that this is not being like ripped open by congress but there's something that i call the missing money shot which is an actual over-the-shoulder video at the DNC headquarters of the pipe bomber uh, taking the, the device out of the book bag and placing it, uh, uh, we're told, by the foot of the DNC park bench. Now, that tape cuts off right before the person gets back to that bench. We have an over-the-shoulder view. We have a, we have a view from the shrubbery of, of the person sitting down at the bench where we're told that the pipe bomb is. What I'm trying to get to here is we actually do not know as a factual matter that the person shown on on tape at, you know, at 8.05 p.m. on January 5th, planting the device that would be found 17, uh, uh, 17 hours later, was actually that same person who planted the device. And we don't actually even know that that the device that was that was in that book, that 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 backpack or whatever was in that backpack was actually the same pipe bomb found uh, found at, at uh, you know, 17 hours later uh, you know, from the video this week. And that is because the FBI is withholding a video, which we know 100 percent that they have. Now, they, they uploaded two sets of videos on the FBI archive. In March 2021 and September 2021, they have not uploaded a single new video since September 2021. So it has been, you know, two and a half years since they've uploaded a single new video. And what's crazy about those two videos when you when you juxtapose them is, is they have the person walking up to the park bench the first time in clear view where we the same because these are two adjoining park benches. He sits on the north side one. Uh, initially, and then he sits on the west side one, but they're the same bench, basically. They form an L. And we have a clear shot of that person walking up to that bench where he then get, makes some text messages and then, and then doesn't sort of L lap around the perimeter. And then we have, we have an opposite side camera view of him coming up to the bench, sitting down in it, but it's occluded by this giant shrubbery. What I'm saying is, is the FBI has a video of the, a, a clear as day video of the person reaching into the bag and taking out a device, and for whatever fucking reason, they they did not they are not showing us the video they have of the pipe bomber planting the bomb. Now I ask, what possible fucking reason could the FBI had? They had a fifty thousand dollar award, then a hundred thousand, two fifty. Now it's up to five hundred award. They said, look at look at your friends, look at their gait. We don't know their age, their sex, their race. They don't have a single fucking hair follicle or skin cell from an amateur-made pipe bomb and walking around D.C. on foot for 90 minutes in halfway broad daylight. This was seven thir- between 7.30 and 8 p.m. Uh, and so this, and I guess what I'm trying to say here is, is 
I suspect because of because of the malfeasance inherent in that fact pattern and the fact that three fucking years later, they have not even showed us the video they 100 percent have because we have the stationary camera where it was shot of the person taking the bomb out of the bag. I wonder whether that was the same device planted and whether and 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 it would seem silly actually operationally if it was the same device because that's 17 hours on that park bench if a single person had gone over to that park bench to have their breakfast bagel or coffee it could have foiled the whole thing so i suspect the reason that there's all this fuckery around the discovery of the dnc pipe bomb with with and this and the strangeness around this is because there was something else that happened in that intermediary period somebody else planted it in a more secure way perhaps it was whether that was Secret Service, whether someone is part of the advanced team, or whether that was something else, but that was closer in time, and that would allow that particular, you know, uh, device to be found. So yes, Mike. I, well, fuck, man. Stream of consciousness, one hundred percent. I agree with you. Um, there's something I haven't come out with yet. I'll come out with it here. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna say it here on this, on this. What I'm about to say. Number, there's a couple things, right? Number one, we saw the timer. The, the, the timer on the bomb doesn't make any sense in relativity to the 17 hours. It doesn't make any sense because it's like, a, I think it was like an hour kitchen timer, like an egg timer, like an hour long. It's like that obviously does not work, right? 17 hours, one hour, like obviously number one. Number two, this is something that we have not released yet, but in those documents, there is the anarchist library, right? So the anarchist library goes through, you guys know what the anarchist cookbook looks like. But the anarchist library was actually added to the Sunrise documents that we investigated. And one of the things that they highlighted specifically was pipe bomb making. And so they, they actually so they put the full library. I think it's called the anarchist is what they linked. It's in the documents that, that on the Sunrise Zoom calls. But then they also took a screenshot and they actually put into the documents the specifics about the pipe bomb. And it's actually very, very similar. And what I had questions about, number one. Number one, this is why I keep bringing this up. And you guys, like, I, I understand you guys are like, okay, Aaron, like, let's calm down about the Sunrise Zoom calls. But this document hub that we have has explained a lot of what we saw from August through January 6th, August of 2020 through January 6th, 2021. And when they're highlighting these pipe bombs, it's possible, based on your summation here, it's possible that there was probably a real one place and they replaced it with a fake one and it was politically advantageous and they went with it. That's conjecture. I have no facts to that. But when I look at the access to the documents, what they produced, this the anarchistlibrary.org uh, library of basically the anarchist cookbook just reworked and specifically highlighting within this hub. I, I'm, I'm just going to put the hub out there. I want Millie to be able to to continue reporting on this before we put it all out there. But that is in there as well. And this is why I've been focusing on this on the pipe bomb story in this capacity, because the timeline doesn't add up. Right. The egg timer that was on this supposed device doesn't add up and the documents that they put out do not add up as well and so based on you, what you just said it, it fits into exactly what i'm looking at and that's why i keep bringing it up i keep pointing to it maybe one day somebody will be like okay yeah you actually were right maybe i won't be don't know but uh, senior chief go ahead so second point first the placement of the bomb in the videotape so we have the individual with the backpack who takes the bomb out and we've seen that Darren Beatty has proven that the, the, the video was manipulated. We suspect that the FBI is sitting on it with a pretty high level of confidence that they're, they're withholding it. Um, but nobody has mentioned the, uh, the cell tower dump, the, cell, the, the tower dump, where the FBI came out and said, oh, the, the tower dump was corrupted. That's possible, 
Um, I was the co-supervisor for the Boston Marathon Bombing Task Force. And when the CAS team, and I forget what the acronym is, Kyle, you might be able to chime in, but it's the cellular analysis, whatever. And they're supposed to be the experts on cell phone analysis and, and geolocation. Yeah. So they got the azimuth 180 degrees wrong when they did the tower dump uh, after the bomb went off in Boston which cost Sean Collier his life because it cost us about another 12 hours in the investigation. So, yeah, it, they could have been that incompetent. But that was 2015, 2016, um, that the uh, – no, no, hell no, it was 2020. Yeah, well, it was a while ago. Can I ask um, you, can I ask you though, real quick, not all the data from that, from that time period was corrupted, just the specific individual – that they backtraced into Virginia, right? That that specific. No, they've, they've never admitted to any individual that I'm aware of, at least not yeah. publicly. That's coming from me. No, they what they the did is they said, they said okay. the tower dump from a specific provider was all corrupted, that the data was not good. Okay, all right, thanks. Correct. But they got yeah. data from other ones, George. They got data from other ones. Just one particular just provider one particular was. Tower. So <laughs> it, 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 it defies credulity. It, it really brings like a fit. I don't know if anybody here, I'm sure, I know Kyle does. It sounds like a fifth grader telling the, the teacher that, that the dog ate his homework. I mean, it just it's just it's it stinks to high hell. So, you know, I'm not buying any of that crap. And I use geolocation while I was at the National Security Agency to, to kill people on the battlefield. And it's a highly reliable, highly accurate method uh, of targeting individuals. So I'm not buying any of that bullshit coming out of the FBI that the, the tower dump was flawed. Um, cast team, when they screwed up the, the dump on the Boston Marathon bombing, was almost brand new. I'm sure even by FBI standards have climbed the learning curve to a point of maybe somewhat competence. So I'm not buying any of that. And then finally, um, plan A, plan B, I, you know, I had postulated that this had been in the works for quite some time, but it has all the hallmarks of a Hollywood production, doesn't it? I mean, we had um, the the sound over that was done for the uh, the CCTV footage for the J6 hearings done by a Hollywood type. And then we just happened to have Nancy Pelosi's daughter filming a, a Netflix documentary uh, at the same time. So a lot of this is just too coincidental for comfort and I'll stop there. Thank you. No, I, I think you're right. And, and Kyle, I'm going to come to you as, as well. I, 100%. I, I think bringing up Alexandria Pelosi and, and like some of the footage that we saw and like how Nancy Pelosi wanted to punch Trump in the mouth and she's been waiting for this. Like, I think that's compelling. And the January 6th committee, the unselect committee, if you want to call it that, whatever it may be pointing out that it was like produced like a Hollywood film. I, I think that's spot on. I think that's accurate. I, I just, I'm, I'm, the plan A, plan B, the reason we're calling it plan A, plan B, and maybe I don't want to brand this, um, it's just because, you know, Dan Bongino and many other people whom I respect have been using this kind of ter terminology to kind of explain it, and it resonated with me because I understand what I was looking at the leading up to the vote and what they had planned to do and all the people that were involved with the TIP and the count and Sunrise Zoom calls. To me, it looked like plan A, plan B, but maybe it was all in one. I think Mike made a compelling case on whether or not this was all plan A. Man, I, I think you had. But the only thing that I give pause on that 
this was actually a plan B type scenario was the fact of how it was treated. The story that should have been a global story that was completely suppressed and nobody talked about. And we still don't have answers. We should clearly have answers for it, Kyle. So I'll come to you. I just. Well, let's talk with the basics because uh, my buddy Steve Friend pointed this out the other day in our private little conversations we have. And I've never seen any conclusive evidence that the FBI has shown that the pipe bombs and whether they were dropped by the same person or not, which is, I think that's what the video seems to indicate, maybe, but that assumes that they were actually put there at that time, 17 hours earlier, which, like Mike said, problematic. We haven't seen anything that says why that person would somehow have something to do with what went on in the Capitol the next day. Like, how do we know that's not just because something happened doesn't mean that it is related to something else because something else big happened on the same day or in the same area. Uh, Washington, D.C. is a big city. Maybe somebody hates government. They just came in there and dropped a couple of bombs off, right? Like, that's a possibility. Without proving to me otherwise, you should at least start with somebody did something bad. Let's find out what it was, you know, what that what that device was, why they put it there. We have to actually, like, we've, we've assumed so many things that are not, like, facts and evidence right now that the FBI is just basically comfortable making an allegation that it has something to do with that day and it could have nothing to do. It could be some asshole that just drops off bombs places. And since we've had those in this country, in my memory, while I was at the FBI, we had a guy do it in Austin. He just started randomly sending people bombs. I don't remember that there was a great ideology and he ended up blowing up on the side of the highway. So do people do weird shit like that? Yeah, of course they do. And you have to start with it like, we don't know what this is about. There's just an event and they got nothing done on it. They got nothing done. They haven't got anything out there to the public. They lost their only lead and they're kind of like, well, that was a good try. And then they moved on with their lives. Are you so we're supposed to believe that someone who thought it was okay to drop allegedly viable bombs, which we don't believe. We're supposed to believe that someone dropped two viable bombs in the nation's capital. And that resulted in the FBI saying, well, the cell phone towers didn't work and they were wearing a mask and it's at night. I mean, they might have well have been going after a church the way we see that uh, they can't go after what happens at pro-life centers either. If you go to a crisis pregnancy center and burn it down in the dark, the attorney general will say it's hard to find people in the dark. Do you guys remember that they've done that? You yes. can find anybody walking inside of a fucking building with a mask on by the size of their earlobes, but they can't figure out where the guy is that dropped a couple of bombs that could have gone off anywhere and apparently were viable, whatever the hell that means. Like all of it, it, it all just strains the bullshit meter to the max. It fills the filter up and all of us all explode over and go like, obviously you're lying. And then everybody speculates. The, the one thing that I will caution people on, because this is something I see between the mental illness I get in my DMs and the sort of like otherwise reasonable people that have kind of cracked in the last couple of years. And I think we're all on any given day, we are closer or further away from that threshold of just kind of snapping a little bit. The real thing that we have to remember is just because all of the institutions of our government and of our society, whether they be pharmaceutical companies, whether they be the media, whether they be, um, you know, the government, the law enforcement entities, all these things that you probably 10 years ago would have thought of trusting without a whole lot of problems. Maybe you never trusted anything. Maybe you're really smart. But if you had trust in basic institutions that kind of function for Western society, they've all debased themselves at a record pace in the last like probably three to four years. And as they did that, some people took the wrong message. It's the message that I am consistently preaching against. Just because the institutions are no longer um, worthy of your trust doesn't mean whatever crazy shit that comes out of your head is also true. So we can't just become completely unmoored from reality simply because the things that used to be our anchors 
are not anchoring us anymore. I think it's super important that people still have a basic degree of skepticism. So the the lesson should generally be, I don't trust the fill in the blank. I don't trust the fill in the blank. I don't trust the fill in the blank. And I don't trust you either. I wanna see it proved with actual evidence that I can decipher with my own two eyes and understand that's the case. And and so rather than learn the wrong lessons, I just wanna caution people that like, that's, that's the only thing that keeps people from flying off the handle. And the only reason I mentioned that is because I probably get I probably get upwards of 15 messages a week that have shown me that some people have lost the thread altogether and I hope they find something to grab onto. Um, I'm not your guy, by the way. I can't help you stop the directed energy weapons that are inside of your head or whatever other weird shit that goes on. Like there will be people after the space that will DM me like absolute insanity and I, I feel so bad for you that you have that. But we all should be just real cautious and be skeptical of pretty much everything and uh, especially this narrative that somehow these were viable bombs and then cops acted like no big deal and just got out of their car after a sandwich and let kids walk in front of a fucking bomb. There's just no part of me that will that will believe that anybody that carries a badge is that stupid and or evil that they would expose children to it unless they knew an awful lot more than what was going on. Even if it was just like a radio call that came over from the other side, like, hey, they're bullshit. We just found out who it was. This is a bad op or something. Something had to happen on those comms that relayed from site A of bomb one to bomb two that changed the response dramatically from set up a minimum safe distance and block the streets and start investigative processes to lackadaisical hang on out. And by the way, there is some video footage of this stuff that's going to be released soon. And I've heard it described to me. And so far, the descriptions of video footage has lived up to exactly what I expected with the way it was described. So keep an eye on Steve Baker's feed if you guys are interested in this kind of stuff. And if you're not following him, that's uh, you're screwing up. Definitely follow. And follow Darren too. I mean, no, no doubt about it. The guys that have been riding this thing, you know, they're going to be the ones that bring it home too. But uh, isn't it a shame that our federal government didn't step up and do the right damn thing when there's actually an entire $11 billion agency that theoretically has almost unlimited resources to spy on us, but can't be bothered to find a guy that's just like lobbing bombs into public and where people are walking with their kids. It's bizarre. It's so, real quick, Kyle, you, you went past it about 200 miles an hour and I'll hit it real quick and then I'll shut up. How many bombers do you know do one and done? Bombers typically are serial bombers, and bombs have hallmarks where the bomber uses the same type of technique that the investigator identifies over a series of bombs. But nobody puts out two bombs and says, oh, that's it. I'm done. Let's add to that. The, the other problem is, is that whenever a bomb like this goes off, whenever there is a uh, an unknown, an unsub that's dropping explosive devices, they deconstruct the bomb. As George just said, they find the MO, they figure out what the fingerprint of this of this particular bomber is. And I mean, the digital or the, the mechanical signature, what kind of materials, you know, what sort of shape and, and initiation and all these other things. Does it bang against something that's happened overseas? Because we've got entire indexes of people who were building bombs in various different countries like shit Stanistans that we've been keeping track of. All that's always been going on. What's really unique about this, and I had EOD folks tell me that are in the law enforcement community, they said basically whenever there's a bomb found, and it gets deconstructed by a federal agency, it's pretty common that they put out kind of like a quick, either like a white paper or sort of like a bulletin on here's what this bomb uh, construction was. And, you know, that way people know, like, if you see it, this is what we're looking for, for this particular bomber. If you find something that lines up with the same MO, with the same sort of, uh, you know, technique, then we want to know about it. And and this is just standard practice to disseminate information amongst the uh, the EOD type community, the, the law enforcement 
you know, explosive ordinance community. The fact that there wasn't one after this, apparently the FBI took it down to the Charlie range and demoed it. Um, I guess they must've done the DNC one because I'm sorry, the RNC one, because the DNC one was detonated in place. Then uh, that was game over. That was it. Like nobody ever heard anything about it again. There was, and, and people even asked like, Hey, is there going to be a bulletin about what was found? And it was like, Oh, we don't even know. Like we can't even get the cell phone data. You know, it just, it, none of it lines up with the way the business as usual and overwhelmed by circumstances is not a good answer because they could have come back to it at any given time once they got their footing. And that didn't happen. That hasn't happened as far as I know. If anybody's an EOD and, and knows that they got a Bolton on it, go ahead and DM me. That's I'll take that over mental illness all day long. But I've never heard that's changed. And I, I know people that still work in that world. So it's completely bizarre. And it just, as Mike has accurately said, it defies credulity. Awesome. This has been super informative. I got a, I got a jet, but learned a lot here. And uh, thanks, guys, for doing such great work. Talk to you. No, thanks, Mike. I appreciate you coming in. And, and I, I think I think what you brought to the space uh, as far as the timeline and what you were talking about, I think it's very important to note in this conversation. Thanks, awesome. Mike. I appreciate that. Thanks. All right, Senior Chief, let's go. Um, I don't have anywhere to go. I mean, this has been <laughs> – they're just – but but to Kyle's point, we haven't seen – if this is truly near the near end of our quote democracy, then we would have seen some minimum level of communication from the FBI of the investigative steps that have been taken. But most people in, in the public sphere don't even know about these bombs. So for them to start briefing about what have we done, what have we identified? To Kyle's point, you know, look out for these types of, 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 of uh, you know, hallmarks and identification factors involved in bombs. We haven't seen any of those kind of press conferences coming out, you know, for helping to inform the public. You know, like I said earlier, you know, OK, I dropped my two bombs. I'm done. My bombing career is over. Um, that's just not the way a, a regular bomber uh would operate. We didn't see it with Kaczynski. We didn't see it with the weather underground. We didn't see it with the Austin bomber that Kyle was talking about. That's not how bombers work. That's why they're typically referred to as serial bombers. And then the FBI hasn't shared anything with either Congress or the public or even internally, because I still have some sources within the Bureau, that these are the steps that we've taken. This is what we've identified. It's just, yeah, the tower dump was shit, and one bomb was blown in pace, and the other was blown up out of the range of Quantico. Yeah, we're done here. There's nothing to talk about. Nothing to see here. Leslie Nielsen, move along, move along. So, also, you think about the the crying that you see on the political left about uh, January 6th was the worst uh, threat to democracy, et cetera, et cetera. You'd think that in the uh, the sort of the the progression of that screaming, it would be like, you know, like people came into the people's house and they were really crazy and they were really mean and they, you know, wiped poop on the walls, which was one of the things that was said, right? I, I'm, I'm remembering Dumb and Dumber. You remember when they're like sitting there and they're trying to figure out what to do with their life? They're like, we got no food. We got no jobs. Our pets' heads are falling off. I feel like someone threw two flipping bombs in the middle of the street. You know, next to some like relatively critical buildings of the political process, that's the pets' heads are falling off part. I've never heard that screamed about by people on the political left. Like, how in the world is this not the thing that they're yelling about all the time? Why are we trying to memory hole something 
like I said, the single most terroristic act that happened on that day was someone left an indiscriminate weapon system with an unknown initiation device, theoretically, that could have taken out anybody. And then nobody cares, right? I, I just, yeah, but like not, not only did nobody cares, Kyle, there was like, oh yeah, no, we know about that over there, but like you guys can still cross the street. It's fine. Uh, also, uh, you know, let's eat this sandwich. I think the sandwich seems to be important. If that thing goes off, like, yeah, of course, those people in the corner are dead. No problem. Okay, so, like, let me reset the room a little bit. And we're probably going to wind this down, but it's been a great space. I, listen, this story is just getting started. I'm telling you, if you guys are not following Steve Baker, uh, TPC4 USA, uh, Steve Baker is a contributor at Blaze. He has been a January 6th video hawk. Uh, I've had him in a couple spaces. The guy is all over it. The FBI is coming after him, which tells me he's over the target. Because right now, the FBI that we have is weaponized. And, you know, I mean, if I ask Kyle to tell you to burn it all down, I, I'm not putting words in his mouth. I'm just simply paraphrasing. But at the end of the day, we have all these questions. We're left with more questions. And I think that Kyle pointed out something that's very important to note. That 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 it we it's left up to us to speculate or to try to collect try to connect dots, try to figure out what's going on because we have people that probably have answers, including Steve Duantano and many other people within the FBI at the time uh, could answer these questions. And then we we're left with, Oh no, you know, cell phone data is corrupted. Oh yeah. No, that, that, that video part is missing. Oh no. Ignore the egg timer that won't make it 17 hours, but apparently that was put down 17 hours ago. Oh, yeah, no, no, n never mind the fact that uh, the electronic magnetic doors were opened on the Capitol. No, no, never mind the fact that uh, they broke session. Never mind the fact that we, we can also use, at the same time, cell phone <laughs> GPS locators to locate people that are in or around the Capitol grounds. But then you're also going to tell me that the, the, the data was corrupted uh, during the time of when supposedly this pipe bomb was laid. Like, you can't have it both ways. And like, so we're left with these questions and, and I would encourage people not to connect too many dots and find obscure articles and, and obscure information. I have been reserved on a lot of the stuff that we've been coming out with. Millie and myself had made sure, hey, if we're saying something, here's the document. Tell me I'm wrong. And until you tell me I'm wrong, I'm going to keep going with this. I, I, I'm looking at this, 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 these relationships between these uh, uh, horizontally aligned affinity group protest groups. I'm looking at these meetings saying, yes, I'm from DHS or yes, I'm a contractor in DHS. And yes, we're going to shut down DC. I I'm not trying to make loose associations. I'm trying to figure it out because there are people with answers that are being withheld from the public. They're lying to me. I know they're lying to me. And it requires people like Steve Baker and Cal Serafin and, and everybody else has been on stage, Mike Benz and many other people that are working in this, Darren Beatty and Julie Kelly. They're trying to get answers. They're tr Dan Bongino, we're trying to get answers. We have hypotheses. We don't have concrete facts. But when I start adding up these pebbles of sand, at some point I have a pile of sand. At which point I'm going to have to assume that what I have, because you're not giving me any 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 uh, uh, opposing information. And now Millie's here. Millie's been doing hits all night, by the way, Kyle. I tried to bring her in. We shut up the space. Millie has been doing hits all night on the content that she put out. So I want to bring her up. Uh, but Kyle, if you can't make it, like I get it. I, I know you're a family man. Like I get it. Um, we have an audience here. I think that we should actually go back into the content that we've been talking about. But, um, but Kyle, like, again, I appreciate everything 
like I appreciate your friendship and everything that you brought to this space. I think that you guys should be paying attention to Steve Baker tomorrow and the pipe bomb story. I think you should be following Darren Beatty. I think you should be paying attention to what Revolver's doing. I think you should. Dan Bongino has got it. He seems to have got it to me. And 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 I, uh, I think we move forward. We start getting some answers. We can force some kind of disclosure. And and Kyle and I will probably headbutt on some of our conclusions because you're an investigator that was trained as an investigator. I'm a dude on the internet that has trained myself on my own to be an investigator. So maybe I'm connecting things that I shouldn't. But people that are listening, please stop sending me stuff that is esoteric and does not connect. We're talking about direct evidence um, uh, information. I, I, I need people to breathe, but we also need some damn answers. Kyle, before you take off, I'm sure you got to go. I'm Before good. I'm gonna, I'm gonna sit up. I've, I've been waiting to hear what Millie has to say. So, oh I'm my here. God, dude, you're you're done then. You're up all night. You're up all night. Well, because... I know it's terrible. I'm gonna have to be up early too. I'm gonna take a pee break. That's pretty much it. But okay. I'll just be on mute. And uh, Millie, I'm glad to I'm glad to hear this. What you got going on? Oh, jeez, are you kidding me? So let me get to Mitt Romney's ghost. Let me clear the hand, and then Millie joined us. I'm gonna kind of reset the room and give Millie some bearings to like land the plane on. But like this woman exposed a lot of the stuff that I led this space off with. A lot of the stuff that we're talking about, plan A, plan B, and what's been going on the last few days with plan B, with the you know, pipe bomb investigation, Dan Bongino and Julie Kelly and all these people, plan A, I believe that we've laid out. Some people may disagree. I don't know, but I think Millie can speak to it better. So Mitt Romney's ghost, go ahead and then let me uh, bring Millie back into this. Hey, thanks, Trash. I'll be short so Millie can get to her stuff. She's so great. Um, and hey, Kyle, how's it going? So if uh, on with the uh, the bomb making and the bomb itself uh, on Jan 6th, uh, if we go back um, uh, quite some time ago, about 20 years ago, you remember the first twin tower bombings with the blind shake. Um, the FBI, under four stories of underground parking concrete, was able to find a partial VIN number on a axle from the van that had the bomb, you know, in it when it went off. And uh, just, just a little bit of background, I ran a, a bomb arson task force for 10 years. Um, so this find was pretty impressive. And from that single piece of evidence, that small partial VIN, they were able to track the truck, get a rental agreement, find the person, and eventually convict the blind shake and the uh, bombing that he did on that first World Trade Center bombing. But then come to find out a couple of years later um, that there was a CHS involved with the Blind Shakes crew that was uh, working on behalf of the FBI, kind of helping these guys along like the Whitmer kidnapping. You know, hey, this is where you go to buy this kind of stuff. This is how you do it without, you know, being caught and being suspicious. Here's how you put it together a little bit. And these are the type of materials that you need. And eventually the guy got a little nervous because the person he was working with seemed like they were very committed and actually going to go through it. And he kind of pulled away. So my point here on this whole deal is, yeah, finding that partial VIN, pretty great find. But if you knew the people that were doing it already, um, the fact that they were able to take that info and actually convict the blind shake with an explosive device that actually detonated and was buried below four stories of concrete. But here they had two complete 
pristine devices collected by expert CSI people, and they're not able to find one solitary piece of evidence to help them identify who it is. And then the likelihood of the, that they, there's possible, highly likely, they could have had a CHS or this person was a CHS or it was a confidence. There's somebody else involved with this thing than besides uh, the, the hoodie wearing y- yokel that was trace trancing around DC with this bag uh, in their hand. So th- that's what I got for you. That's it. It, it. When you put it together with that trade center bombing, it, it's an interesting uh, correlation and juxtaposition when you look at it. Let me just throw one last little like uh, nonsensical sense the, the the lead that we were running down admit you can appreciate what this is and what a what a slam dunk this looks like when you've done man tracking there was obviously somebody who was sitting on a park bench mike benz described it pretty accurately i think that's fine whatever this person whoever this person was uh took a route that was able to be tracked through a number of security cameras, went to a metro station in DC. That metro station had cameras. They were able to capture that person getting on a uh, on a train and using a metro card. They were able to find out what time the stamp was based on you know the cameras and it being inserted in. When that happens, then they're able to go and they're able to track it back to what the exit was. That exit, the person leaving, they're able to line it up with a uh, a license plate, right? You got a license plate, then they've got an address. The name on the license plate or registered to the license plate was the same as the person supposedly that bought the Metro card. All of this stuff is really, really like, okay, that's a pretty much a home run for a surveillance. I've started with far less than that and found people where you told me this person lives on this street and they drive a white vehicle and we think it has four doors and this is their driver's license picture from 10 years ago. And I've I've found those people regularly. We had really good success with that kind of crappy information. So you're going to tell me that they lined all that information up and put us in front of a front door and pulled us off three days later? That's batshit crazy. And whether they got it all wrong, maybe they got it all wrong. Maybe that's what happened. Maybe it was just all wrong and they never explained it to the guys who were out there in the field doing it. But my buddies who were on that surveillance team never got put back on that same exact case. And the person that we were out there trying to look at was apparently someone with an active security clearance who had retired from the United States military from a branch and had also uh, been working under a security contract for the U.S. government at that time. So I asked to go bump the person. A bump is when you go and you either have like an informal conversation or like a sort of a impromptu on the street interview. And I felt fully comfortable doing such a thing because I'm not a CT guy who has to hide in the darkness and, and act like I don't do the FBI's job. The FBI, in theory, at that time, when this was going on, was running down someone who had theoretically just dropped bombs in the nation's capital. And I was more than willing to go and try to see if this person was willing to talk to me. It's like, look, uh, looks like you got yourself in and of your head. We've landed at your doorstep. Let's have a little chat here. We were both in the same branch of service. Maybe we can uh, find some common ground and you can get yourself out of whatever this is. And and I mean that in a genuine way because I don't know what that person's scenario was, whether they were a driver and didn't know what they were part of. Any number of things could have been true, but we didn't continue that and they've never gone any further on it. And that seems highly problematic that they couldn't at least say, we had a person of interest, that person didn't pan out, we're working on the next step, which is one of the reasons why I've said it publicly is because... This is absolute bullshit when your federal government that we spend, like I said, $11 billion on is not going to come forward with some basics 
which what should be the biggest problem of that day. It should be that our pets' heads are falling off part of the line. And instead, it's they're just basically trying to ignore that it ever happened. And that's absurd. It's it's absurd on its face that this thing is not the number one story and hasn't been the number one story. That somehow overthrowing the federal government with flagpoles was the number one story that this uh, like leftist media has run with. That to me is beyond, it's beyond, like it's it's criminally insane at that point. 100%. Yeah. No, I agree. And so, Millie, I'm going to get you caught up a little bit. You've had a busy night. You've had a busy day, which is great. Um, So I let off with kind of what I thought was plan A because, you know, Dan Bongino brought in plan B. Whether or not we like that dichotomy or not is irrelevant to me because it looked like to me like this entire pipe bomb setup was, in fact, that. And the way they handled it after they discovered the quote unquote pipe bomb and all the details surrounding it was completely suspect. And I talked about the anarchist library um, that we found in the documents. I talked about extensively the documents that you got through the Sunrise Zoom calls and that how we've been accessing all these documents and trying to put it out as best as, as, as best you can and I can and trying to talk about all this. But also like the count, the TIP, what led up to January 6th and what kind of did this. And this is kind of where we're at. But you had some uh, you had some reporting that we kind of covered in space yesterday that's gone, obviously, you know, quite viral, but. That's kind of where we're at, Millie. We were litigating the pipe bomb scenario of this because I wanted to bring you in on on your investigations on what I thought was plan A. But that's where we're at. So So, um, I just kind of want to give like a a little bit of a backstory because I think we have a lot more people maybe from different areas that haven't heard some of the initial backstory on the the investigation. So um, around the spring of 2019, uh, I started looking into the Bernie camp because they started really kind of um, coming on the scene with the campaigning and really took note of the Sunrise Movement, which was like a youth climate-led movement that really seemed kind of communist under the scenes, but, you know, green on the outside, red in the middle, kind of watermelon type of climate group. Um, And I noticed that Bernie was, um, they were endorsing Bernie, and Bernie was going and speaking at their events, and so was AOC, and they were really kind of uh, centered around this, like, Democrat um, hub that had been going after Trump very much. So we uh, basically, I uh, conducted an investigation into the Sunrise Movement, and we essentially infiltrated these left-wing affinity groups. And what you find is you think that these groups are really kind of separate entities, but in reality, they all work very closely together. They, They call themselves affinity groups, and an affinity group can be like a pocket of 15 to 20 people And then those pockets of people can all work together and form clusters. And then the clusters can all form together actions. And so you don't have to have everyone from the exact same left-wing appendage or left-wing organization to be in that same affinity group, if that makes sense. So they all are very much incestuous. They intermingle. They all know each other. They build, you know, strong relationships and trust with each other. And so... What we what we began to gain access to was um, kind of as our infiltrator went up the uh, the trust bracket and kind of passed with tests and went further into having more um, more of a position of trust. Uh, we started getting into their inner working uh, document hubs and started seeing inside of, um, you know, shut down VC, momentum, beautiful trouble, like a bunch of these other allied affinity groups and their zoom calls and their documents and what they were doing so just to kind of give you like a background of 
of why you kind of see this mixture of left-wing names uh, is because they are all kind of coordinating and working together. So, for example, there will be like a Zoom call where you'll have the, the leader of Black Lives Matter, the leader of Shutdown DC or Extinction Rebellion, and you'll have a bunch of leaders of all these different you know, like the Sunrise Movement, right? They'll all be on the same call together and then they'll be plotting and talking about pro upcoming protest actions and what roles each of their different organizations are going to take in that upcoming action. So um, what, what really started to kind of happen is going in towards the election, we really started to get a lot, a lot, a lot of more movement and action on their part. And this is where, you know, the, the Zoom call that I really did a thread I posted a thread today about comes into play. So the week before election night, there was a group of federal employees, government officials, former, you know, lieutenant colonels in the Air Force, people that were working in national security, worked under the Obama administration. I mean, really people with some pretty high caliber politically connected backgrounds, people who actually had access inside our government and could actually you know, do some do some damage to the Trump administration. And, you know, all throughout this, uh, this call, they're talking about and instructing each other on tactics to use uh, to subvert the government and really to subvert Trump. So they'll talk about using bureaucratic slowdown. They'll talk about uh, leaking to the left wing media allies to talk about um, just using many different covert tactics and and kind of skirting the line in which they won't get in trouble with the Hatch Act. Um, basically, they they would do actions that were illegal, like conducting leaks and conspiring together to gum up bureaucratic processes and slow things down. But they they had like a Department of Labor lawyer there, for example, who really was kind of teaching them on what on how to do it more delicately and more covertly. And then they would give examples of when things were effective at stopping and killing policies. And so um, I guess just to kind of go further into that, um, this group was very much going over scenario exercises regarding the election, which is interesting because they're the, the main scenario, the only scenario they really wanted to talk about was a scenario where um, the election had a bunch of irregularities and Trump was refusing to basically concede and Trump was declaring victory. Um, so that was like the main scenario that they were kind of going over, which is interesting because a lot of their, a lot of the things that they would talk about in this Zoom call, which I'm sure Aaron could speak to, it's really stuff that they reference from that document, The Count, and which is also citing material from the Transition Integrity Projects scenario exercises which those are all documents that were shared inside of their movement resources. Now, the, the document, the count, that document was written by high-level Democrat uh, campaign directors for Bernie Sanders and people that worked on Beto's campaign, really well-connected Democrats and political strategists uh, wrote that document. And I mean, that's the document where inside of it, they actually talk about a contingency plan for January 6th, where if it comes down to a constitutional crisis that they had already mapped it out, that um, there was a situation where they were worried where if there was enough irregularities, if there was enough, you know, you know, arguments over if mail-in ballots were valid or not, um, that then 
that would open up for the constitutional crisis situation. And they worried that there could be a possible situation where it goes off into, you know, the House and the Senate breaking off in their separate chambers. Neither candidate is able to to get the 270 electoral college votes. And that doesn't even necessarily mean that Trump, you know, that Trump would have slates presented. Right. It just means that Biden wouldn't be able to get it. Maybe enough Republicans would refuse or enough there would be enough challenges that neither candidate would get the 270. And then if that happens, it would then break off into a new kind of um, a new process where it would be one vote per state. Because according to the, the rules, that's where it goes next. If you can't get you know both the House and the Senate to come up with it together, they break off into separate chambers where the House is supposed to vote on the um, president and the Senate's supposed to vote on the vice president. And if neither of them can both get the 270, then it goes into another process where, like I was saying, one vote per state. And they had calculated that in the one vote per state situation, if it ever got to that, that Trump had it and that Trump would be the the next president. That was very likely because of the political makeup of the states. So that's one of the things they were very much worried about. And so what they had a plan for was that on January 6th, if it got to that, that they would um, physically take over the Capitol building to shut down the Electoral College count vote. I think they, they worded it as stage protests inside the Capitol to physically make it impossible for Congress to meet and vote on January 6th. Now, if that isn't enough... They actually did a Zoom call with the leaders of the the radical left wing kind of Antifa groups. So shut down D.C., Extinction Rebellion, BLM, a bunch of them were participating in this call. And these were very much D.C. uh, D.C. outfits of these organizations. So they did a Zoom call where they were talking about taking over government buildings, taking over D.C., shutting down D.C., and they specifically had a, a very detailed ArcGIS map, which usually like to get access to the ArcGIS, you know, type of situation, uh, software and, and access to that, you usually have to have university access, which now we know why, right? When we've identified all of these feds for democracy, these federal bureaucrats, many of them are actually, uh, you know, deans or professors in universities, especially in, in Georgetown. So, um, there's your access right there. But basically they had a detailed ArcGIS map and this is where it kind of ties in with the DNC pipe bomb situation. Now their uh, interactive ArcGIS map that they had, it was pretty like well planned and thought out. They had every single bullet point of their targets um, on there. And I remember watching the video and seeing how they had the, both the RNC like, offices and they had the DNC offices and both of those were targets that they had and they talked about targeting both and they talked about you know targeting one basically targeting the GOP if it looked like they needed to um push back on Trump and the Republicans if it looked like it was going in favor of Trump but then they also talked about targeting the DNC, if it seemed like Biden was going to concede or if Biden was going to kind of back out or cower, or if the Democrats were going to be resistant to what they were trying to do. 
And so they talked about that specifically. So it is interesting that there was a, a pipe bomb at the DNC when the, they actually had these locations as their targets. Now, the other thing, which was completely like glaringly obvious and you couldn't even not notice on their Arctis map was they had a big giant red square around the United States Capitol building um, that was completely shaded in red and that that was their main target. And um, they talked about taking over government buildings and that there's going to be a per, um, that basically we should take over the government buildings. Like that's what Lisa Fithian says, who's like a well-known left-wing protest activist, leader, seasoned leader. Um, she was talking about and instructing people to take over the buildings and that there's going to be people there and they're going to take over the buildings and we should let them and we should help them. That's literally what she says. And now doesn't that sound like what happened on January 6th? There were people there, right? And she's like, they're going to take it over. We should help them. We should let them. So it's kind of, you know, setting the stage here for, you know, obviously taking over buildings is not, you know, it's not a good thing to do, but that's what they were talking about doing in their, in their call. And one of the other things they also talked about doing, they specifically talked about cutting off the tunnels, like the subways tunnels to prevent the representatives from being able to leave. So essentially like holding them inside the building and not letting them leave and go home. So they also talked about that as well, specifically. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's pretty bombshell information and, um, you know, and then just to add the, add the cherry on top, um, a document that was also inside of their resources hub, which consisted of, you know, they had quite a few different election related resources and materials and documents that they had for people to use, as well as they were funneling people in their left wing groups to go sign up to be poll workers at very specific poll worker staffing organizations. So like 501c3s, nonprofit, but you look on the board and it's almost entirely staffed by like ACLU, SJWs that are like, you know, completely, you know, left wing in nature. And they would be um, heading up the swing states. And they, the idea was basically, you know, funnel all of these leftists in our with our loyalty that are receiving our instruction, our documents and get them into the poll worker staffing companies, the poll worker staffing, sorry, organizations, not properties and company organizations would fill out the applications and they were skilled at the application process and they would get the people signed up. So, and, and this is partially because many of, because of COVID, um, traditionally like old people typically were the ones volunteering and running our elections for a very long time. And because of COVID-19, the media was putting out a bunch of pieces saying, stay home, don't risk your health and telling all of the old people not to go work the polls and to stay home. And so because of that, it created a big vacuum, a big void. And these leftists were already ready and prepared to fill that void. And they did it very quickly and efficiently with these poll worker staffing organizations. And right. so, right. Millie. And, and to that point, I want to add on to that. So like it, 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 upon a re investigation, we looked into this stuff. Thank, thankfully to the person you inserted, we saw these documents and we saw like, I don't know, six or seven different groups of like get out the vote groups where it was like Stacey Abrams in Georgia and many of the other swing States, but like the, they were recruiting college age people to work the polls. And they were actually giving them scripts on how to resist any kind of challenge. 
basically, I don't know, wear your mask, ignore whatever they're saying to you and keep processing what you're doing. That was the general thread across all these different poll, poll worker, poll worker <laughs> it, or, or organizations that were in this document. So like, I just wanted to add on to that, Millie, because like it was actually quite extensive. Yeah, 100%. Like they, they were preparing the people that were going to be working the polls to push back and how to handle the situation when they're going to be confronted by maybe GOP poll watchers or, you know, people that might be trying to, you know, call them out or, or they call terrorize. They say those who are going to harass us and terrorize us and with, you know, threats of violence and, you know, they kind of work it up in that way, but it's really giving them a guide on how to handle when these GOP poll watchers or people kind of push back on their activities and what they're doing. And so now this is the really big one. There was a document that was shared inside their resources hub as well that literally talks about uh, printing ballots. I mean, it's pretty alarming. I mean, it's like they make a big emphasis on, um, participating in the election in you know a certain capacity and and one is obviously being a poll worker but then also they they talk about um these other type of positions and roles that they can play as well and they literally say on their uh you know they they call okay so here's what it is they call it being an election protectionist i know that sounds kind of crazy but it's they call it election protectionists. So I think they're kind of trying playing off like when they would call people like abolitionists, right? Um, but they're they're saying an election protectionist. So just if you don't mind, I want to read off this uh, one part in this document, which you can find the document in the thread. It's it's at the very bottom. You have to actually click like see more replies. Um, so starting at um. It starts at 32, but really I want to kind of go to page 35. And on there, it talks about in 2020, we expect the percentage of absentee absentee or VBM vote by mail ballots in many states to jump from 5% to as much as 80%. At its best, vote by mail can represent a historic transition from hackable electronic machines to universal paper, paper ballots. It's long been the core system in Oregon, Washington, Colorado, Utah, Hawaii. And then I'll just skip down to this part where it says printing and publishing. It says paper ballots must first be designed, printed, and published. Simple typos and deliberate manipulations can destroy elections. Butterfly ballots in Florida, 2000, decided elderly voters to mistakenly choose Pat Buchanan. Absentee ballots in Ohio, 2004, omitted John Kerry. EP, which is election protectionist, activists must proofread all draft ballots before they go to the printer. Guarantee enough are printed for all registered voters and make sure they get back to the election board on time. Ink specifications must be varied so ballots will be readable in electronic imaging machines. Um, And then there's another uh, document in here where they specifically uh, say something that's pretty crazy. Um, Let me see if I can find it. Okay. Chain of custody. Maybe this is one. Yeah, they they make a really big point to, 
make sure that there's like a good clean chain of custody on the ballots. And look, as far as I'm concerned, and I know, I don't think that these left-wing protest activist groups, people calling themselves election protectionists, are supposed to be printing ballots. Um, And that's what they're talking about doing in this document. And even um, the document, I actually put it up on my my website, millennialmillie.com. And in it, you can download the full document, the full PDF, and the links are in there. So they link it to a specific website. And on the specific website, you can actually go in there and see that the author has a little website in the dark corners of the internet where he actually has this material posted up on there as well. So it's it's out there, guys. And it's just crazy that, you know, they, they were able to, to, to pull this off. And that's what we're talking about, right? Like, so Kyle, like, uh, I, I appreciate you being with me. Um, <clears throat> this is what we're talking about. I, I, w- when I say, like, there's plan A and plan B, I'm pretty sure that this is plan A and this is what I'm talking about. But like what Dan and Julie and everybody else is like investigating with plan B. Yes. Like I also believe that's what the pipe bomb is. Like this seems to paint the whole picture. I, I Maybe I'm wrong, Kyle. I don't know. Like, but maybe I'm wrong. Well, you look, here's the reality. It needs to be investigated. And I think that's the bare minimum. Right. And that's all we're asking for. We're asking for an investigation. Look, here's the material. Here's what the, the these people were talking about in their own Zoom calls. Here's their own documents. He, you know, I, I am completely overly like offering any bit of my time and services to help in the investigation with Congress to provide them whatever they need. Um, I could show them and give them a tour inside of the internal documents hubs. I mean, I, I've done that with you, Aaron. I've shown you inside. We, we've done Zooms where I've shown the American Mission team inside. And so I would be more than willing to show them kind of that chain of the documents, the chain of where it, where it all is. And so they can all look at it and investigate. And then really, I think what's going to boil down to is investigating these, these people, calling them and questioning them. What did you mean by this document that you created? What was the purpose, right? Like, what have you been doing? Like looking into and subpoenaing things that that involve their activities, who they've been in communications with. What you know, these are things that the American people have a right to know when you have groups conspiring on this level. And you know, it's one thing um, to just go, okay, well, they had this document talking about you know illegal ballot activities, but this group has a history of engaging in clandestine and illegal actions. I mean. We're talking about a group of people, government employees as well, plotting and conspiring to subvert our government from within, talking about how they have been the ones leaking the information to, you know, ProPublica and Politico and doing all of these things to undermine our president and really undermine the will of the American people. Okay, not only that, but, you know, there's a whole there's a bunch of other stories as well that I broke on the Sunrise Movement. And it's it's all included in that that article on millenniumillie.com where I kind of give like a backstory on it. Um, but yeah, like I, I show the video of where, the, you know, inside the Sunrise Zoom calls, some of the um, protest leaders and activists were hosting a Zoom call where they were talking about their hashtag Me Too stories of being sexually assaulted, at least what they were alleging, sexually assaulted by high-level Democrats 
And one of the, the the girls in there actually says that she was sexually assaulted by Joe Biden, which whatever her opinion of that is, which I, I don't think that's that hard to believe. But um, she talk, they talk about instead of doing a hashtag me too story and, and going public, we're going to instead use it to build power. So they talk specifically about how they're going to use it as leverage on Biden and his administration. Now, you could think like, okay, maybe they're just thinking this and these are just some paranoids and they're not, you know, they don't have any leverage and they're just kind of being overly diluted. Well, explain to me why as soon as Biden gets elected and in office, he puts some of the leadership in the Sunrise Movement in his administration. He does a, uh, a huge executive order called the American Climate Corps within direct partnership with the Sunrise Movement. And the Sunrise Movement was calling for this Climate Corps for a while. I mean, they take credit for it. It was their conception, their idea. And Biden made it happen for them and gave them credit in the press release for the executive order. I, I mean, you can't make this up. Um, and the the entire American Climate Corps is actually to create a like a, a workers apprenticeship type of uh, program where all of these young kids are going to be recruited in and trained in climate, right? And this is part of their whole addressing climate. So they're, they're basically going to be indu- inducted and brainwashed into climate ideology, which is exactly what the Sunrise Movement really does and has been targeting middle school and high school kids, kids to do. Um, and then they're going to then, um, because the American Climate Corps that Biden enacted, they got all this federal taxpaying dollars, hundreds of millions of dollars, and they've been given these partnerships with federal government agencies and departments. Um, they are going to be shooing in these youths that have been trained in climate change that have gone through the American Climate Corps into the federal bureaucratic workforce. So this is their way of installing all of their um, radical leftists that believe in climate change that are going to, which this is what they say, they're going to be the ones to uh, solidify and, and enforce the Green New Deal policies. So, so I'm going to wind down this space a little bit. Um, we're probably let, me gonna... fire off a, let me fire off a quick question real quick before you do. Yeah, yeah man. Here you are. No. Millie, uh, do you do you know uh, Mike Waller? Are you familiar with him at all? No, I'm not. So I I did an interview with him last week. He's someone I've been talking to for months at this point. But he's a um, he's been working in the center. I think it's the Center for Security Studies. He's a security analyst. He's got a PhD, probably in political science. Although I probably should ask him that. That seems like a basic interview question that I failed. Um, really interesting guy. Talked about uh, basically growing up and where he decided to get involved in politics was and and he's got to be in his late 50s or early 60s he was in the climate movement a green movement trying to shut down nuclear power on the eastern seaboard um in a pre-reagan time and apparently was completely infiltrated with marxist ideology it was run by struggle session trained uh, activists out of california and so this sort of this sort of, uh, you know, green movement doing this sort of thing, like you just, I think you described it as watermelon, which I've never heard, but I like it. Uh, apparently this stuff is is, is long running and uh, it's also kind of goes back to even like active measure type work uh, from the uh, from the Soviets going back to the 1930s, give or take. 
probably worth a listen to, but also worth uh, chatting with him. He's J. Michael Waller on uh, on Twitter. Uh, outstanding information, super interesting guy, and probably has a lot to add to this particular discussion. Uh, I found him to be really, really uh, responsive, and and he's also really fun. He's got a great sense of humor. Saw all kinds of weird stuff. He was uh, he was a hip pocket source of uh, former CIA director uh, Bill Casey at one point, where he was getting paid out of Casey's pocket to go and do missions in Nicaragua and whatnot. So, truly interesting human being, but uh, also probably has some pretty interesting insight on this including the kind of the government. And he also lives in D.C., so he sees all this horrible stuff. Absolutely. And, you know, this it really is a Marxist kind of problem because all throughout the, you know, Feds for Democracy Zoom call, they kept on saying over and over again, solidarity, camaraderie, you know, and one of them even had Comrade Loke as his alias that he used. So they were continuously saying in solidarity you know like the chat would just towards the end the chat lit up with solidarity solidarity resist resist solidarity i mean it's so weak-minded it's, it's, kind of, it's so weird to see that uh do you are you guys familiar with do you recall the because uh, i wasn't a twitter user until quite recently but uh i tracked everything kind of in the background like a lurking shadow and uh one of the things that kind of uh has caught me off guard and i haven't seen much about it but there was a, a whole a whole system of alternate government accounts. Do you guys recall that happening? Was that something that was uh, well known to people? Do you know what I'm talking about? I'm not sure. I'm not sure what, is there any way you could elaborate more on that? Yeah, so I actually found, uh, CNN even reported on it. So they referred to it as either rogue or as alternate. And what happened, apparently, some uh, ideologically motivated workers at Twitter copied every single official government um, websites or not website, Twitter handle. So for example, the national park service NPS has a, a Twitter handle and it has a couple hundred thousand followers that follow national park service crap. Like, uh, glacier is going to be closed because it's snowy or whatever. They put their stuff out there. It's a, it's an official government thing. They created an alternate version of that. That was all the same followers with the exact same logo unverified and it was it was basically a, a just a, a copy and paste. It was a duplicate account that was run by people who were against Donald Trump. And if CNN's reporting on it, you know that's pretty interesting because they're willing to acknowledge it. There were uh, hundreds of these accounts that were created across the federal government that cloned the original government accounts, but they were run by people that were ideologically motivated on the left. And I'm wondering uh, how much of this stuff, how far back some of this stuff goes. When I saw it, I was like, oh, that's pretty conspiratorial but then i just realized like i just started looking at it when you were talking and i found a cnn article going back to 2017 right and i i actually think that this is this group of people because if you look at their um activism resources for federal workers guide uh at the very front and top of the document they have a bunch of images of like alt parks services alt fda alt you know, all these different federal agencies and departments. Yeah, these are the Millie, ones. Yep. I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll, Millie, I'll post it down in the chat. I'll put it up in the nest. I've got I just it. did. It's up there right now. It should be the, the far left uh, one. It's the CNN article at the very least. You can see it goes back to 127 of 2017. So right after he was, right after the inauguration, one week later, CNN's reporting on it. Right. So, so CNN's reporting on it, but, but in their own internal documents, what I'm saying is that 
they also had uh, their own documents, had their own images that said alt this, alt that, you know, as far as these different governmental agencies. And even in the Zoom call, um, there was a, a, a basically a moment in the conversation where one of them says, we're like the Lithuanian government in exile when they were talking in regards to choosing to work with the Biden transition team and stonewalling the Trump appointees and Trump administration in the post-election scenario, uh, basically meaning after the election, they were going to choose to work with Biden and to reject Trump. So this is this is the thing that that concerns me, and and I think this actually loops back to some of the stuff we talked about earlier. When when we use terms like deep state, I find them pretty off-putting, only because I think they're really emotional. They they say the right thing, but people have gotten something else. They built up an ideology around the words, and so the the words administrative state I think are much more communicative. They're much less sexy, and and they're much more accurate. It's administrators. It's people that are not doing like deep things. They're just the bench is deep which is to say that it's a bunch of administrators and there's a lot of them. Um, what's what's wild to me is when we talked, did we talk about the NSSC in here? I felt like we did. Uh, Aaron, is that correct? Yeah, we did. We did. We did. Okay, yeah. good. Sorry, a lot of things run together. It's been a long day. Um, when we talk about something like a national special security event, which did not happen on January 6th, and the declaring agency is the Secret Service, and that's an administrative agency. It's an executive agency under the president's office. It goes underneath DHS. So when you talk about having ideological capture of government agencies, the concern that I have is that the person who would otherwise make that recommendation, the person who might make that decision process um, would forward it on to whoever rubber stamps it because it's not going to be made at the director level and it's probably not going to be made at the deputy director level. It's made somewhere below that. Um, these are not that high level decisions to make. It's just something that has to be done. And the amount of money we're talking about is actually not even that big. It's you know division level as opposed to agency level. And when that is the case, if somebody has decided like this is a great opportunity and they are working on one of these alt type accounts and they have this ideology that they're trying to like hijack or kidnap the mission and this is an opportunity to turn it over sooner than later that that's the kind of stuff that looks really truly diabolical to me and has the potential of being really dangerous and as you mentioned i think i think uh, millie the, the the main point is we know the agencies that were supposed to be investigating things like election fraud weren't doing it i know that wasn't happening I know there were not election fraud cases. I know that the dozen guys that, and gals that were on my squad sat down with our supervisor and said, look, there's some bullshit that went on and we'd like to at least know that that our agency is doing their job to investigate potential fraud. Can you can give us some kind of assurances that that's happening? My boss went forward and asked the people above him that were at the Washington field office and he was slapped down and he was told, basically sit down, shut up and color. And then he got his transfer of of request and went out to Colorado and before his time and he's on he's upwards of I think he had maybe 13 or 14 years in so he was only a couple years away from retirement as far as I know he no longer works for the FBI he's decided to leave and he's a pretty honorable person he was a West Point grad and he was someone that you know served honorably in the military and when people like that are being shoved out and kicked out and given their favorable transfer and shut up and, and, and get out of our faces. And then you have the other side of it, which is guys like, um, now he's going to escape my name. Um, he's the, he was the ASAC that was sitting there. 
Timothy Tebow. Sorry, it was going to come to me always. Timothy Tebow was an ASAC of the criminal division at the Washington field office. So again, this is January 6th era stuff, but he was also in charge of the squad. He was the the supervisor above the supervisor of the election fraud task force that existed in Washington field. And he specifically started removing agents who he knew had upwards of like six kids because he assumed that they were probably religious because that's a pretty good assumption if you have six, seven, eight, nine kids. And then he also used that as a stand-in for conservatives and was quoted by somebody that I know who was in the office that heard this, I'm not going to have any damn Trump supporters on my election fraud task force. He didn't confirm that these people couldn't do their jobs. He didn't see some evidence of work that that showed that they were not able to do unbiased work. He just simply removed people that might be favorable to doing the right thing if they saw something like that and that weren't ideologically motivated. And the person that I know that was specifically removed, who is now retired and is still scared to come out and talk about this, which also tells you an awful lot about our FBI, when the retired agents are still scared shitless of their own former agency, when the agency doesn't even control their pension, OPM does. But this guy... Um, had over a decade of experience in that particular kind of work and would be considered, uh, you know, close to an expert in doing that kind of criminal investigation. And we know that they were removed. So that tells us the stuff wasn't investigated the way that it should have been. So asking for, hey, can we just have some group that we can trust do the actual work? Because as a a reporter and as a journalist or anything along those lines, and even members of Congress are going to have a limited ability to do so. They don't have the legal charter and they don't have the staff or the backing or the training, the people that they're getting for their investigators for whatever it's worth. I don't know if there's any congressional investigators in the audience here listening, but, you know, they're former agents that have some, some loyalties to their former agencies and they have a hard time pointing holes in it because all their credibility is based on the fact that they came from a place that they might be trying to investigate. That's not good. You know, that's not an unbiased group of people. And so we're not seeing anybody that should have the charter or the mandate or the authority or the ability to go do these investigations. They're not happening. So that's, that's not okay. You can't come to the, you know, you can find all the circumstantial evidence we want, which is awesome. And those are really, really strong pieces of an any investigation. At the end of the day, you got to sit down in front of another human being. You've got to get information from them directly. You have to be able to compel certain records that are not available otherwise through subpoenas. There's a reason why the tools of law enforcement, once they've met certain burdens, are able to get more obtrusive because they're supposed to be able to find the truth. And people tend not to tell you the truth when they're involved in nefarious action. So you're only going to find so much that's going to be available. And and the way that you lock this stuff up is an actual investigation. And And unfortunately, I don't... I don't see that forthcoming, at least not right now. Um, maybe in 25, if there's a different group in the White House and they actually get their their act together and and really, you know, uh, seize some reins and get a couple of offices under control where they can actually go do this kind of work. But until that time, you know, we're, we're asking somebody to basically work against their best interest because it seems like, as you mentioned, a bunch of all, all government accounts and so on, you know, this is, would be pretty problematic to what it is they've tried to accomplish. Like, they don't want to do this. Nobody wants to expose their own wrongdoings to the light. So we're working against people's interests. And that well, not good. you know, one thing I will say is this Congress does have the ability to investigate. They do have subpoena powers. They have the, the ability to call people before them and ask questions. But and just think I, about this. And this and I agree with you in principle. That's assuming that we all play by the rules. But like, well, let's say you don't want to go in there. Let's say you pull a Hunter Biden. What's going to happen next? Well, I don't know if these people have the exact same political pull and power as Hunter Biden. I mean, his, his dad being totally, the president kind of yeah, helps. I totally agree. But my other point is, is that Congress people. doesn't have, they don't have an executive arm that can go out and do this. This is the reason why our system of government is supposed to work the way it does. 
We're, I don't even think that Congress should have a, uh, a police force. Like the, even the U.S. Capitol Police is a problem because they're actually exercising executive authorities under the legislative branch. If they're just a security guard apparatus, but they claim to have investigative capabilities and some others. So all this stuff is all kind of problematic. The end res the thing is our government's not working the way it's designed to work. And I, I, I'm shocked to think that if Congress puts out a subpoena and says, give us this information, you know, the FBI gets subpoenaed by Congress too. And they just go, no, we're not going to do that. And, and then what do you have? You have two co-equal branches of government that are pushing against each other. The real danger is, and I think this is what you've sort of highlighted is that if it is in fact members of another government agency, or you know, part of multiple government agencies, they can thumb their nose at the legislative branch because they are falling under the executive branch. And who's gonna change, who's gonna stop them? Who's gonna compel them to do something when we feel like a lot of these things are captured? And and that's that's fundamentally a pretty dark feeling, like I said, at least temporarily. It's not a good sense for our, for our country. Well, I think that, you know, um, I hear I hear your sentiment there, but at the same time, like I'm not worried about let's like how much power should Congress be allowed to have or not when it comes to their investigative abilities when, you know, we saw we've got bigger problems on our hands. We've got federal government workers, maybe even up to 140. Right. That's how many participants were on the call inside of our government conspiring to subvert the United States and the will of the American people and our elections. And, and it's a really big, serious problem. So we'll address like congressional issues later. I think that if Congress had the authority to do these, you know, J6 clown show investigations and pull in all these people to be investigated and to be questioned and they've got subpoena power, then that's something that we should do. I, I think that we would be uh, we would be really I think our representatives would actually be being very negligent if they didn't open an investigation into this material, because, you know, if there's enough people demanding it enough that their constituents saying this is what we want you to do. This is the will of the American people. We want to you know, we want to investigate this network of Marxists that have infiltrated our government and that want to subvert the will of the American people. You know, so I, I definitely think Congress can do something and they should do something. And that then out of these investigations, they can refer it to the DOJ. But see, if, if nobody talks about it, if we just complain about it on Twitter and Congress doesn't touch it, then the DOJ can just ignore it, ignore it and pretend it doesn't exist. But if Congress actually says, here you go, we are recommending this. That's that's a paper trail right there. Don't disagree with anything you said. I think all of that stuff is is accurate, and I think those are all the things that we would hope. My my ongoing concern from seeing what's going on from the bureau side of things, we have a, a an active lawsuit right now. I'm suing over some FOIA information that's not being disclosed. Is that the FBI has decided, and this is the you know sort of the one of the largest functional wings of DOJ, that they are not only going to thumb their nose at members of Congress. They've actually we've got some pretty good intel from uh, from a meeting that happened in November that they summarized and lampooned the investigations into the FBI by the 118th Congress. We're uh, trying to get access to the uh, to the actual training documents that were put out, but they, they basically had senior level members of the Office of General Counsel come and meet while the director was president in the Hoover Building at the Bonaparte Auditorium. And they were making fun of it to the point where even people who are on the political left inside the crowd said, obviously, no adults reviewed this information before it was presented. So that tells me that the level of seriousness that they take Congress at is very low. And that's also been something that's been reported to me by a number of people that still work there that are listening to this stuff. And they're appalled 
And so, yeah, in a, in a functional world, the, the reason why subpoenas were working under the January 6th committee is that if you didn't obey them, theoretically, they'd stick the FBI, you know, via DOJ on you. And yet, I don't know that the FBI is complying with that because, like I said, that's what ideological capture looks like when they're only playing for one side. Then we're in uh, we're in the upside down and, and we're, we're playing it with the rules, but the rules are not applying to both sides evenly, which I think many people get a sense of that. So anyway, it's it's not that I don't agree with what you're saying. I 100 percent agree with it. I I want that for all of us. That would be the most beneficial and fair outcome for people on the left and the right, if they're being honest. But right now, one side is playing a very, very short sighted and incredibly dangerous game with uh, with the way that our country runs. And, uh, you know, the outcome of it is not good if they continue to push it to its logical conclusion at all. No, nah. guys, I appreciate the space tonight. Um, <clears throat> I'm probably going to wind down and uh, thank you, Kyle, uh, Millie, everybody else. We should probably wind it down. I'm, I'm going to tap out. I got to fucking go out of the country in the next two days. Look up the receipts. I, I look over the receipts, look over the documents, look over the reporting that Millie has done. Millie, you've been kind of on a, to a tear tonight. Like, have you been uh, have you been hitting spots on uh, uh, legacy media tonight? Not on. I wouldn't say legacy media, but so far, just like conservative media. We haven't gotten to that point yet. We need people to share it. So you know, everyone that's in this space right now. Um, if we could put that the thread up in the nest, I just ask everyone, please share the thread. There's specific videos inside of the thread that really should be retweeted and amplified. Uh, I'd say one in, one specifically is um, number 19. And number 19 is where um, one of the uh, participants in the call specifically talks about how he's been leaking throughout Trump's presidency, um, leaking information and documents to um, Politico and ProPublica and texting them or, or whatever, messaging them on Signal and that they help protect him, th them and this, that, and the other. So that's one that really should be kind of amplified because uh, it's, it's a pretty powerful video. So if you guys could retweet that one. And the other thing is, is I, I look, I'm going to give to some point, I'll say possibly X is, you know, not censoring this content anymore, but, but we still don't know that. So please guys, let's, let's kind of defeat the algorithm because Twitter files did show that the sunrise zoom calls, the, these very calls were heavily suppressed. I mean, they were number eight in the top 10 most suppressed stories on Twitter during the election with almost a half a million tweets being removed. So they removed almost a half a million tweets from Twitter about this content to try to heavily suppress it. So we're going to have to work extra hard in getting this content out. And I think what we really need to be doing is make sure you guys, when you're sharing it at your congressional representatives, and demand that they take action, demand that they call an investigation, demand that that you know they do a hearing. We can take action. They can take action. They can do their jobs. And there are things that we can do. And so, you know, that's one thing we definitely need to be tweeting at them. And then also tweeting at other bigger platforms. 
like, hey, have you seen this material? You should be covering this. We, you know, we think that you have a big platform and you should touch on this information. That's something to do as well. And uh, just another thing um, to kind of bypass some of the algorithm issues. Um, it, it might even be beneficial to uh, to share it directly via direct message. That's something I think that would be kind of interesting to try to do. Um, you know, really, we've been asking people to share stuff when we've been hosting these spaces, when we drop really important information and documents and receipts like we have tonight. Um, we've typically told people retweet or share. But I think it, it might also be an interesting thing if each of you guys just, you know, copied it and DM'd it to five of your friends or five people you know. Um, that might be a, a surefire way to get this information out to everyone and kind of use a word of mouth kind of way of just sharing this information. Because I think that the, the American people have a right to know and they actually need to know about what's going on right now inside of uh, our federal government. Do you have any uh, particular members of Congress that uh, you've been sharing this with or that have been receptive or any that you would target if you don't have anyone yet? Um, I haven't really been speaking with any members of Congress directly about it. Um, and I, I did meet one time with, I think it was Scott Perry and I did show him some of this material, but I think that really what's, I think that really, if we want Congress to act, we're going to have to have a show of the people demanding it. We're going to have to have a bunch of the constituents and the people saying, we want you to do your job because I don't know if some of these people in Congress really want to go up against this machine. I don't know if they really I, I don't know if, you know, th there's other issues they're worried about or if they're just worrying about getting reelected or I don't know what the deal is. I mean, I know James O'Keefe put a really bombshell report out today that that uh, it speaks volumes. But I think that if we have enough of the, the um, you know, Americans and their constituents saying we want action, that they're going to they're going to take action. That's what I think. So I, I don't have anyone it's, uh, specific. Kyle, do you know of any specific representatives that sit on oversight committees or investigative bodies that you think would uh, would be interested in this material and be able to utilize it and do something with it? Yeah, we'll we'll back channel on that. I I don't know if they'll be interested, but uh, I know that we can always push it to them. <laughs> and and enough of them have randomly responded to me when I when I reach out that I'm constantly shocked that they. They know what we're doing and what I'm trying to accomplish. So we'll see. Yeah, like I said, we'll back channel on that and see if there's some some targeted pushes to to make it to go to some folks in the DMs. Right. I, I mean, just off the top of my head, I think Jim Jordan might be a good one or Thomas Massey or Matt Gates or some of the people like Marjorie Taylor Greene or some of the people that we know have really kind of um, been more uh, America first kind of candidates or Republicans. So those might be people to uh, directly tweet to and, and kind of ask them to do something, to elevate this, to do, to do an investigation. I think we'll get there. Um, guys, thank you so much for showing up to our space. I appreciate you guys. Thank you for my audio people. Millie, I love you. I'll, I'll text you. Kyle, like, let, 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 let's go. Like, we are in 2024. Like, I don't know what else to do. I don't know what else to say. I don't know what else to present, but we're going to keep doing it. So thanks guys.